This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is my friend Eli Kafori. Eli was born in Lebanon, immigrated to this country in the 80s, and worked his way to the highest echelons of special operations. An incredible guy, has done so much for this country. Always enjoy talking to him, and it is an honor to call him a friend. So now, without further ado, Eli Kafori. Dude, let's go into some of your background. Let's do it. It is let's, so unique. Let's fix the world's problems. <laughs> and so awesome. I mean, your uh, like your upbringing is. I mean, it's so cool that I put it in Savage Sun uh, for those that are are gonna pay attention here. Um, but it's so unique. Um, like, take us through some of the, what it was like to to grow up where you did and then travel uh, to get to this country and how all that worked out. Absolutely. So, um, first off, thanks for having me on, brother. It's always great to see you and catch up. And uh, it's 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 so awesome to see the success you've achieved, man. I'm so proud of you. Keep crushing. Uh, so I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, we lived in an area called Ashrafia, which is like a, a Maronite or Christian area on the northern uh, parts of Beirut. And uh, as you know, being a student of world history at the time I, I was born and, and growing up in the uh, mid-70s and, and early 80s, it was uh, civil war and uh, lots of terrorism uh, happening. Obviously, the Marine Corps barracks bombing. You had, uh, you know, some agency guys get picked up off the street and on and on and on. Not good stuff. And then ultimately being in a Christian area um, surrounded by various factions of, of Muslim, um, you know, entities, if you will, mm-hmm. fighting. We were easy, easy targets. So it was just indiscriminate shelling into where we lived, you know, mortars, rockets, you name it, gunfire, uh, you know. I remember some really magical moments growing up, you know, going to the beach and being in the mountains and the Bacaw Valley and, and just Lebanon. It's like San Diego. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and I hope maybe one day, you know, it, it can be again, but uh, obviously when I was growing up, that, that wasn't the case. My mother was Swedish. So blonde hair, blue eyes stuck out like a sore thumb. I ended up being her interpreter essentially. And like, going out in town to grab stuff from the little stores like the butcher or whatever, because it wasn't too safe for her to be out and about. My dad was a commercial airline pilot. He flew, he was a flight engineer on 747. So he was gone quite a bit, um, you know, for international routes, obviously. And so I was, uh, so to speak, the little man of the house. And, um, you know, I had some amazing uh, cousins that are like older brothers to me and, and obviously uncles, great family, you know, tight knit. And we did what we needed to do to take care of each other. And, and um, for us children to have as a, you know, normal uh, a childhood as possible in those circumstances. And, you know, I, I remember a lot of great memories and, and obviously there's some, there's some really, uh, you know, I won't say traumatic, but obviously, you know, you've grown up in a war and the things you and I have experienced overseas, we know what that looks like. And, um, you know, to imagine growing up in that obviously comes with its own set of uh, hurdles, but you learn to adapt and you keep pushing through. And I feel like parts of that experience are what gave me the mindset I needed uh, to do the things that I've done in life. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful and thankful for that. Ultimately, um, our house uh, was, you know, hit or very close to being hit by some mortars. And, and I was um, 
I was actually, uh, I was a little terror, as you can imagine, uh, you probably the same. I, I got into everything. If my mom said, don't jump out that window into the trees outside, I'd be like, challenge accepted. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm going to go do some crazy stuff. But uh, I had taken apart my sister's high chair and I was like holding, you know, part of it and um, a mortar had gone off or something outside it, you know, enough to shake the, the place. And I went tumbling down the stairs and the chair leg went through my face, uh, like oh. literally just missed the teeth, went right through my cheeks. And my mom, um, you know, a long time back, had, had been like a nurse's aide before she became a Pan Am stewardess. And so because of the fighting, we couldn't go to the hospital. So she just literally like scotch taped my face back together. And then when my dad got back, uh, I think it might have been that day or maybe a few days later, we essentially were like, OK, we're out of here. And, uh, you know got on a 747 cargo plane with some other families and flew out of the, the country. Wow. Did, uh, gosh, are your earliest memories had things deteriorated? Like when you were born, uh, or do you have stories of how it was prior to things deteriorating? Um, did people talk about how things used to be? I mean, it was Paris of the middle East type of a, a situation back then before things started to, to deteriorate. Do you have any memories of that before, um, uh, shelling began, the fighting began? Absolutely. Again, it's much like uh, San Diego, you know, big, beautiful uh, green trees and mountains. You know, obviously we have the Lebanese cedar, which is on the, the flag. And, you know, I remember going with my cousins and climbing up those trees and the pine cones and those things were, I mean, they were like footballs. So you'd get these awesome pine nuts and, um, you know, the beach, like I said, just being out in the mountains with my cousins and, uh, I, you know, it was, it was great. Um, and then, you know, things started happening. Uh, where you, you, you know, even as a young kid, you, you learn to survive and you understand that you either, um, you know, play a part to blend in or, or you move with, <laughs> with haste and prudence, you know, the, uh, like, <laughs> check, you know, I, I remember when I first, uh, was attached to, uh, it was first a, a Marine Corps unit, but then when I eventually got to the team's you know, they're like, uh, oh, you know, patrol, Hey, this is a danger crossing. I'm like, dude, I know all about this stuff. I used to have to do this to go to school, you know, like, <laughs> so, uh, a lot of that stuff paid off in the, in the long run. But I mean, certainly I, I remember, uh, a lot of beautiful things. And again, um, if you know any Lebanese people, they're, they're like perpetual warriors and that's all you hear. It's like, Oh, it used to be so beautiful. And you know, this and that. And, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's a shame. Uh, it just shows you what, what can happen when um, politics and outside entities, you know, I mean, again, you're a student of geopolitics, you understand that you essentially in that neck of the woods have proxy wars between Iran and Saudi and, and Lebanon just happens to be a battleground and, and close to Israel. So, um, you know, a perfect breeding ground for a whole bunch of people to do nefarious things. And then the people just are along for the ride. Yeah. It did, did that stuff carry over to school? Were there like uh, factions in school? How old were you when you guys took yeah. off? Um, memories of that? Yeah, no, in school. So the school is French. Um, it was, um, you know, much like most of the Middle East and Africa. It was like England and France playing with mm -hmm. who owned what, right? And so Lebanon um, had a lot of French influence. And, and so the schools, I was in uh, French speaking school. And, um, you know, as a child, I, I don't recall you know, a lot of that happening. I do remember, you know, like my, our teachers would walk around with a rifle slung on their shoulder and, you know, um, keep, keep the kids safe. Right. It was awesome. And, and you know, that it tended to be because 
you know, with the children in those schools, you you would have a mix, right? Representative of the society that lives around the place. So it was like everybody knew, um, regardless of what side they were fighting on and for what reason, like, don't mess with the school because I, I know kids in there, you know? Wow. Um, but of course, uh, I'm sure just like we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, there are people that will stoop that low. But, um, you know, the teachers did their best. But I, I remember it as a, you know, it was a pretty happy experience, if you will. Nothing bad from school. So, Jeez. And then uh, like the shelling. Uh, so you, you remember that one, obviously, that landed landed close. But do you remember a distinct time when? There was like a shift. You know, kids are very perceptive when there's uh, when there's problems in the house, whether it's personal with parents or professional with one of the parents' jobs or something like that. You can sense the the tension. Um, I'm sure families did across the nation at the beginning of COVID when families got together. Or the kids heard their parents whispering in the kitchen about, "Hey, I don't know if they're going to have this job tomorrow," or you know, just worrying about all these different things when everything was so uncertain in like March, April of 2020. Um, but do you remember like a shift when you were a kid as far as people getting more worried, your parents getting more worried, those conversations. Did you sense that as a kid or were you just running around, jumping out of windows and climbing trees and <laughs> you know, throwing pine cones and like, oh, what's happening? What was that explosion? Or were you like, did you sense that something was changing and that, hey, we might have to leave this place and my parents are acting a little differently? Do you, did you have that sense? Yeah. For me, there was one specific moment where I remembered like, okay, something's up here. You know, obviously your parents will do all that they can to, in your familial unit, if, if you have a, a strong structure around you, will do all they can to, um, you know, make it normal, so to speak, for the kids, right? So that they don't have to deal with the stuff that the adults, like my, you know, I have older cousins and, you know, uncles uh, that were, you know, going out on patrols and stuff. And, and even still now to this day, um, a lot of them don't, we don't talk about those stories. It's just mm. something that, that happened, you know, and, and, um, you know, they were doing their part to, to keep us all safe. But for me, I was on a, um, a walk with my uncle and I had a little schnauzer and we're walking along and we come up to a couple guys with AKs and with no warning, a dude just walks up and blasts my dog's head and I'm holding on to the other end of the leash. And, um, you know, he, they essentially called us out as, as Christians. And he was like, get back to the rocks. You, you came out from under, you know, get out of here. You're next. And so my uncle is like, he scoops me up and, and he's like, you know, Oliver got bit by a dog, uh, snake. Oliver got bit by a snake. And I'm like, Hey bro, I just, I just saw that, you know, like that was no snake. So he was, even in that moment, uh, he was trying to, you know, protect me and, and have me think that, you know, something happened to the dog of a more natural cause, if you will, not that some, you know, coward just blasted some kid's dog in the face, you know? So that to me was like the, the first moment. And, and even seeing all the adults um, try to kind of like reframe that experience for me, mm. worried about like me, you know, having damage or something from, I don't know, it, it was yeah. reframed as this, this whole other thing. And I was like, man, something's going on here, you know? And, and I think I was, I was probably five and a half, six when that happened. And so I was old enough to understand, like you mm -hmm. said, to be in tune with what's going on around me and, and to, uh, to have seen that obviously with my, my own two eyes. And, you know, um, I just remember, you know, like being in his arms and him, him, you know, moving, running and, and like, telling me uh, that the dog got bit by a snake and he was screaming because we were both deaf, you know, from the AK blast right up close. Um, and I was just like, man, something's going on here. But yeah, that for me, that was the moment. Yeah. That's, uh, 
that's, that's certainly significant. What? Jeez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they call in law enforcement a clue. Uh, that <laughs> something might be going on. Yeah. Did, um, yeah. How long after that did you guys pick up and and leave? Um, it was a few more years after that. My, um, oh, wow. So my, I had family, aunts uh, and uncles that were here in the States uh, on my mom's side as uh, au pairs and, and mm-hmm. uh, things. So we were able to come visit, um, you know, on, on some travel visas, but uh, we could never stay. And then obviously with what was happening in, in Lebanon, um, you know, immigrating from Lebanon at that time was damn near impossible. So um you know, it, it, it took some time to be able to, to get out of the country. Like I said, that one instance with, uh, you know, putting my sister's high chair through my cheek and, and tumbling down the stairs was, was kind of all my, my mom and dad needed at that point mm-hmm. to say like, okay, we, it's time for us to get out of the country. And so, um, you know, we went to Sweden, uh, my mom's family obviously is there and, and eventually came to the East coast of the U S where, where my mom's uh, sisters were. And that also facilitated my dad uh, in his career being a, a transcontinental pilot to be near some of the big uh, airports on the East Coast. So, you know, JFK, BWI, LaGuardia were kind of the and Newark were the ones that he flew out of the most of. So that's kind of the area that we, we eventually settled. But uh, by the time all that was said and done with, I was, uh, you know, just shy of nine years old, I think, by that time. Wow. And uh, then so when you guys make that trip to... Uh, to Sweden, what would you take things with you? Like, you pa- are you packing up like a move? Or are you like grab suitcases? We're going, and we're not telling anybody we're not coming back. But we're not going back. Like, did you know you weren't coming back, or did you like have a have movers? And was it a normal thing, or was it like, hey, pack one bag. We're going to the airport. We're saying we're taking a trip, but we're not coming back to this place. Like, what was that like? Yeah, no. From what I recall, it was just like, hey, let's get some stuff, and we're getting out of here. Eventually, in time, I do remember in the U.S. like having some furniture that that looked familiar, and and I think just with my dad traveling, um, you know, especially when he was flying cargo routes, he was able to, you know, get some things. But you know, all credit to my mom and dad. I couldn't even imagine what that must be like, just picking up my kids and going and coming to a place and starting with nothing. You know, but that's the beauty of this country that I think is lost on most of the people that, that are born here, you know? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, that appreciation certainly is is not there in a large segment of the population. Um, how long were you guys in, in Sweden then before you, you not long. made it here? Yeah, not long. It was more like a, you know, pit stop. Okay. So, so not <laughs> you know, long enough to not. go to school and get settled no, there in order to no. pick up and go again. So the plan was always go, we're going to go to Sweden. We're going to turn around and head to the United States as soon as we, as soon as we can. Yep. So once, uh, that was, uh, you know, approved, I, I remember, and I think I've shared this with you before, but, um, you know, we landed in, in JFK, I believe it was, or LaGuardia, it was somewhere in New York. I want to say JFK and, uh, not to, not to date us, but, uh, that was back in the days where you and I remember walking down steps out of an airplane, not onto a jet bridge. And, and so, um, you know, we land on the runway, we're walking down the steps and, and, um, you know, I haven't even talked to my dad about this in a long time. I, I wonder if he even remembers, but it was like, he was waiting for my foot to actually touch the tarmac. And as soon as my foot touched, I feel this big, you know, gorilla mitt on my shoulder and squeeze. And he puts his you know mouth right down to my ear and he's like, don't ever forget this step. And then that was it. And I was like, okay, this is serious. Like, where are we? You know, it's America. Man. It's amazing. But that stuck with me. And then throughout my entire childhood, my, my mother and father just inculcated it within me that, you know, this was somewhere 
really special and um, it was going to, you know, provide for our family. Like, unfortunately, um, Lebanon was unable to. And so many people left Lebanon during those, during those days. That's why there's so many, you know, Lebanese communities all around, all around the world. Um, but, uh, what, so what did you do once you get to the U S now? Are you, uh, are you go right into school and do you feel, uh, accepted right away? Are you a little tentative? Like what, what's it like as a nine, 10 year old to now be in a new country coming from a place where you were getting shelled, uh, and now you're in a place where that's not, uh, not normal, not usually happening anyway, uh, in most of the United States. Um, and now you're, you're, you're not worried about that and you're going to a new school and, um, how was your, how was your English at the time? And like, what, what was that like? Uh, certainly some bumps in the road, uh, in the beginning, you know, when we, when I first moved here, I could speak Arabic, French, and Swedish, no English. And so, um, you know, obviously wow. at that point in time, uh, what am I in third or fourth grade, something like that, second or third grade. Anyway, I had to do like the summer kindergarten to learn English. And so I'm around toddlers, you know, and, uh, my mother and father stopped speaking anything to me in the house, but English. So, you know, I couldn't, I was just an angry, pissed off little kid because, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't effectively communicate with my mother and father. And, 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 and in hindsight, that's something I always look back on as I moved into the health, you know, side of things as, as a practitioner taking care of people, it just made me empathize with uh, folks that have a difficulty communicating because I feel like that's why so many uh, of, of those folks get so upset because they're, they just get frustrated. Right. And so it, that experience, again, you know, is I always try to reach back in my life on things to learn from and grow from. And, and as difficult as that was at the time, eventually it became very beneficial as far as my, my empathy uh, level went. Right. So, but at the time, you know, I'm being talked to by teachers, my mother, father, everybody in English. And, uh, <laughs> one day, you know, I'm, I'm calling the, the, the teacher, of, you know, some nasty name as a kid, like a, you know, a cow. A, I didn't even remember what I said, but I heard this like, <clears throat> and I turn around and there in the back of the room is, is my dad. And I was like, son of a biscuit. I'm going to have to learn English now, you know, like I'm busted, <laughs> you know, but, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I learned my mom, um, I, you know, I used to watch a lot of general hospital as a kid. Uh, a lot of people learn English from watching soap <laughs> operas all around the world. It's, it's an interesting how often I hear yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Because I think, you know, my, my mom, she, um, was stay at home, but eventually, you know, she had a, she had a really amazing entrepreneurial spirit, which I think is, is where I get a lot of that, you know, stuff from, but mm -hmm. she eventually started her own business in, in uh, monogramming and embroidery, but was home. Right. And so being around, um, she'd be like, here you go, dude, sit down and we're going to watch the show. And I didn't know what, what the heck was going on. I was just trying to pick up words and, mm. um, you know, really just dive in head first, uh, to, to get it as quickly as I possibly could, because obviously the school year is coming up. Um, then in, in, when school started to answer like childhood stuff, you know, I was in Northern New Jersey, which is a predominantly Jewish area. Not that any of the kids understood and, or that I gave a damn, but I was, you know, and I never even told my parents, I didn't want them to worry. I just sucked it up. Cause in my head, I was like, I've been through way worse than what these kids are doing to me, but I was harassed, bullied, called, you know, a rab camel jockey, sand N word, like you name it. And I think it was just, you know, it's, it's ignorance, right. When, when, when people are, are bullying or, or to me, the way I always looked at it is, is hurt people, hurt people. Right. And so there's something going on in that kid's life where, you know, I'm going to be 
the projection uh, of his uh, his feelings. Whatever. So I never I never looked at that as representative of what America was. Mm. Even at a young age, my you know my my dad and, and mom would tell me like, listen, there's going to be people here that because of where you come from, they might not treat you well. Uh, but that's not America. That's just that one person. And always be proud of where you've come from, um, your your heritage, your culture. Um, but uh, you know, and don't be ashamed. Always hold your head up high. Treat people as you want to be treated. Right? The, the age old adage. So um, that you know, it certainly wasn't fun to get picked on. But what kid doesn't get picked on? Not saying that it's right. You know, but we all know what bullying feels like. I'm sure from school. Yeah. And so it was just something to to deal with and move past, but, uh, it certainly wasn't fun, uh, in the beginning and, you know, being, uh, in love with the ocean, I was and skateboarding and all those things. I, I, you know, I was like, man, America's cool. They've got these little boards with wheels on them. And, you know, I can go surf in the ocean and I can do all this stuff. So I, I you know, I would dress like a, a skater surfer kid or whatever, but I was around people that wanted to wear at the time. It was like Benetton and, you know, all these <laughs> like, fancy like you certainly are dating us now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm dating us, brother. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but all that come, you know, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, anytime that, that, uh, you're, you know, not like the rest of the crowd, you're, you're going to be a focus. So I just learned to deal with it, but, uh, yeah, it was what it was. Do you think that bullying part of it, like, uh, helped in some way to, uh, forge your path going forward, um, into something where you could stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves? Yeah, I mean, again, really point your 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 sharp one, my friend. I, I always try to like look at at the things um, that I experience, my history, right? Just like I like to study world history, much like yourself. I feel, I feel like unless you understand and get amongst those lessons and you try to dissect them and, and pull out the nuggets, whether it's a good experience and obviously the bad ones, uh, I feel like you can really learn from those. Um, I just want to move forward in life productively. Right. And so part of that is always looking back on those experiences. And for me, my father uh, was an airline pilot, but all of his family, I mean, all my uncles, uh, older cousins, they were all doctors, surgeons. Um, and so medicine was just something I grew up around mm -hmm. and it always intrigued me, the ability to save someone. Right. And, and um, you know, being the oldest sibling, uh, one of the older cousins, as far as like the ones in, in my peer age group, if you will, I was always the one like, Elias, make sure all your brothers and sisters and cousins are safe and, you know, go have fun. So I was always kind of put in that leadership role. And with that came a lot of, um, you know, accidents, dirt bike jumps, like, yeah, we're going to build a jump across the river. And then when someone would, <laughs> you know, case the landing, I was the de facto medical person, you know, because it was my responsibility to ensure uh, I didn't get grounded forever that, uh, you know, my my brother or sister or cousin could walk home. Right. So um, it always intrigued me. Like, it's fun to go be part of the action, but I always loved the extra responsibility of now it's your turn to do your mm. work. You know, so um, that was always something certainly that was planted in my head from a young age. Yeah, and uh, and where did the uh, love of the ocean come from? Do you remember those? Uh, Lebanon going to the beach there? Was there a fascination with the, the ocean, the water there? Or did that come once you got to the United States? I mean, there's an awesome surfboard behind you right there I want to ask about oh, yeah. uh, where you got that that thing. But uh, where did surfing and sailing and free diving and, and that uh, love of the ocean come from? Yeah. So like I mentioned in Lebanon, we would go to the beach and, you know, just for me, um, the ocean 
does something to me in my soul. Uh, and I'm sure people that, that love to surf and free dive or fish or whatever it is, uh, can, uh, understand uh, with that statement. It, it was almost like something too, where our families were trying to escape the realities of what was happening in Lebanon too. So it was always like an extra happy experience. Um, it was super fun, you know, just playing and, and frolicking around in, in, in the waves. And obviously it's in the Mediterranean, so it's not like we had surf breaks and stuff, but there were guys that free dove and spearfish and, you know, so I, I just, and, and that, those were the days uh, too, again, we're going to date ourselves again here, but Jacques Cousteau and like that guy to me was a superhero, you know? So I just, I loved watching those shows. That was another thing of, of obviously we see, we would see the French versions, but in America, you know, the English version is just like, it's a whole nother world. And so it always intrigued me. Um, and then as I, you know, grew, I, I realized it was, you know, especially now, much like with archery, like we were talking about, um, it's just something where I can be so present in the moment, not worry about, you know, the pain I'm in or business stuff or family stuff. It's just about, okay, I'm in the water right now. I've got to relax and breathe up before I kick down and go look for some fish or, you know, whatever it is. And, and same with surfing, um, you know, catching a wave, even if it's a, a you know, junky wave, it's the most fun thing ever, you know? And, and obviously, uh, for us, we're always seeking, uh, you know, to get our heart pumping a little bit. So, you know, the conditions can, can give you the things that you're looking for. Sometimes it, it just, to me, it's, it's just always magical. I love, and every time is different, right? The ocean always changes. So, uh, but yeah, once we got here in the States and, you know, there was uh, raves, you could go surfing and I saw people surfing. I'm like, what is that? I have to do that. And, and sure enough, the first time I stood up on a surfboard, it was like, Whoa, what have I been missing? Like, this is what I want to do uh, with the rest of my life, you know? But uh, yeah. Where'd you get the board behind you? That board looks killer. Yeah. So that was a retirement present from I guess uh, that. the amazing long haired admiral. So these are the two boards from the Endless Summer movie, both signed by the guys, right? So uh, it's just a little special, little special boards there. No way. That is yeah. amazing. Too yeah, cool. Yeah, Jacques Cousteau, it's interesting. You remember, I haven't thought about this memory in a long time. Uh, watching those shows, and we didn't have a, a pool, but uh, like one of my friends did growing up at age like five, six in there. And uh, so I remember going to his house and going to that pool. But I remember we had to eat. Remember back in the day, you had to wait two hours or something <laughs> like that. Like if you ate lunch, you had a chip, and then you touched water somehow oh, yeah. in that two hours, you were a goner. Uh, oh, so yeah. I remember having to wait and like they had like the clocked out, maybe it was 45 minutes, but I, somehow two hours popped in my head right there. But one of those, anyway, you had to wait a certain amount of time if you had any food as a kid in the eighties oh, right. or otherwise, if you got in the water, you're done. Yeah. Um, you're going to drown or you're going to get a horrible flu. Something. <laughs> something. <laughs> and so, uh, so I remember pretending be, to be Jacques Cousteau or around, you know, I remember thinking about those specials from, from back in the day doing a breath hold down in this little, little pool, but I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's well, funny you mentioned that my, my tata or my, my grandmother, uh, I used to joke. It was almost like she had this, what I called the hundred rule, like the air and the water had to equal over greater than a hundred when added together b before it was safe for me to touch the water, you know? Wow. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't care if yeah, I got to break ice and sit in the water. I, I love that too. I just, I love being in the water. And so 
Uh, you know, she was always like, same thing, like, honey, you just ate, you have to wait an hour. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. no, I don't. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to go swim Michael Phelps laps. I just want to go float in the pool. <laughs> uh huh. I totally remember that from me. I haven't heard that in a long time. I think that went by the wayside. That's, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that wisdom went by the wayside. Um, well, where did the sailing come in? Where did you start? Uh, did you start sailing in high school or when did you start uh, doing that sort of a thing? Yeah. So my um, uncle that lived in Annapolis had a, a you know beautiful little sailboat and eventually got some bigger ones, but he enjoyed um, the steering portion and and not the, the grinding and, and pulling of ropes. And so my cousins <laughs> and I became the de facto slave crew. <laughs> nice. Uh, but in that, you know, I just, again, I, I really, really love um, sports or activities that are powered by nature in some way. You know, I, um, sailing was, aside from surfing, uh, one of the, the first things I did where you you feel free a little bit, right? Like an adventure. And again, being a, a kid um, watching Jacques Cousteau and you know reading history books about you know the, the pirates and and all the the like early naval battles and all that, like it just I thought, man, how cool would it be to get a sailboat and just cruise around? wherever I want to go, you know, obviously as a kid, you, you think those things. And, and now as I'm aging, I'm like, man, I need to jump on a sailboat and just <laughs> go Let's on go. a trip. Yeah. Uh, and hope when I come back to sure, everybody, uh, everybody's got their heads right. But, uh, no, I just, I loved it. And then, um, it, that got me into windsurfing and, uh, so I could go a little faster and, you know, be my own captain, so to speak. Um, that became an expensive hobby because as I progressed, you know, I want to do what's called bump and jump or wave sailing. And so I was breaking masts and booms and sails. And, um, you know, when your, your biggest sponsor is your mom and dad and, and they're living on a budget, your, your sport goes by the wayside. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I figured out ways to, Oh, I'll just become a windsurfing instructor and I can use the school's equipment. And, you know, so it just, it, it spawned that love in the wind. And then eventually that led to kiteboarding and foiling and, you know, on and on and on. Just, I just loved it. It's and eventually, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I got, got lucky, man. A lot of my buddies too, that grew up in that world, much like you, you know, with JD and the, the guys that, you know, like Jimmy now, right. You've got these world-class athletes that are sailing rocket ships around, you know, like the new foiling cats are amazing, but I was lucky enough to, to go work with uh, a, a crew on what's called the GC 32, which is a 32 foot foiling boat, much like the F fifties, but instead of a rigid wing, it's a sail. Uh, and be their, you know, their safety diver and, and part of their shore crew. So I got to be nice. in and around it, got to get on the boat and grind a little bit, but um, yeah, I just love it, man. Dude, that stuff. Yes. Yeah, so we were just in San Francisco Bay over the weekend watching the uh, uh, GP sale finals. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was amazing. I mean, watching yeah, Jimmy Spithill so up there. Um, and it, it's cool to be able to reach out to him for uh, sailing questions for the, for the novels. But uh, while we're out there in the, we're in the chase boat out there, you know, right there watching everything. It was super cool. But um, these, so there was windsurfers out there in San Francisco Bay. Awesome flying. But then there are also those guys holding the, whatever that thing is. Wait, so there's not a, yeah, that, is that it? You're just holding yep. it. And then yep. they're like moving it and they're jumping, like flying through the air. It was incredible. And I've yeah. seen that a couple of times before, but we were out there like right next to them seeing that. And then they had these guys come flying by on the, it looks like the Jetsons. What are those things that I keep meaning? I, I meant to come home and look it up. Yeah. They have this yeah. like, I think like they had a little remote control in their hand yeah. and they were like, and they have these bright helmets on so they don't get like <laughs> whacked by something. Um, and uh, they were just like zipping around out there on these little like Jetsons, like, you know, it reminded me of Back to the Future too, you know, uh, oh, yeah. the the hoverboard, uh, except yeah. it's on the, the water. So they're foil. So what is that thing? 
What are they doing? So that's a, it's a motorized foil. So at the bottom of the mast, right before the foil, there's a, you know, essentially like a trolling motor. And so it allows them to have a joystick in their hand, turn up the prop. And, and once it's up on step and on foil, there's so little resistance. Uh, like you said, it's like a magic carpet, a little Jetsons hovercraft. But uh, have you done that yet? Strong. Yep. That seems crazy. And it, I mean, some of those boats out there, like the protectors out there, I mean, we had quad 300s on this protector. So we're flying. And I could just imagine one of these little guys in his little helmet, you know, oh, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, like at least with like, you know, the, the, the other things you have something that's like big that you can see, like even a windsurfer, yeah. pretty small, but you can still see that, that sail. You can see all these things and kind of, you know, avoid, or they can avoid you or I don't know, but these guys are just so small. It's like being on a skateboard, you know, on the water, just zipping around, not even as big as, you know, like a jet ski type thing. That's maybe Absolutely. a bright color that allows you to see them. Like it was, you know, the only thing on them is this little tiny helmet that looks like a bobbing, maybe piece of styrofoam or trash, uh, mm -hmm. if they go down. Um, yeah. so anyway, that was interesting to, to see that, but the guys out there sailing, I mean, it was awesome seeing Jimmy race and, you know, we'd seen him in the America's cup in Bermuda and watched that, but this is a different deal, like formula one, but so for cool. sailing. And, uh, what's so cool about this one is that, you know, America's cup, hardly anybody can afford to, to, to race in the America's cup is all that technology. And then there's so many, like the different teams and how much money you can put in and how big your crew can get. There's a lot of things that can benefit a team that don't, that isn't necessarily based upon your ability to sail and, and mm -hmm. your skill level. So this, I mean, it's amazing down to the number of containers you can have. It's all set. You can't have one more container than another team. It's all set. The amount of support crew you can have. Nope. All set. Um, so another team can't have an advantage because they have a bigger budget and they can put a few more, uh, you know, containers together with support crew or material or whatever it might be on there. Like they can't morph the technology. Uh, it's all the same. So now it's sailing again, even though there's a lot of technology, obviously oh, yeah. <laughs> with those things. Um, but it was really cool. It's a great concept. I think like a formula one concept, but for the water. Yeah. And it makes, to me, it, it makes, you know, sailing exciting for people that don't know sailing, right? I, there's part of me where I love the old 80s America's Cup races because it's all about strategy and you know the chess of what they were doing up and down the course, right? But today those boats, uh, especially with closing speeds, like that crossing with what was it, New Zealand and Italy, and you know, like three boats came to the same we had point. Two crash, yeah, two crash. In yeah, the and final. two New Zealand hit. I think it was um, France or someone that was beside them, you know, and so. Um, the 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 speed and violence at which those boats move i think is appealing right and 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 to and to have like you said and and um you know a level playing field so to speak where mm -hmm. where is going to come down to strategy and and sailors and unfortunately we saw this weekend some some less than favorable wind and one damn whale a whale that was yeah. amazing <laughs> close the course for the whale that oh was man pretty, i was like cool to see. I was, that man oh that was such a great race too and jimmy like just took the lead back right I at know. that mark and then they're like races whale. off there's a whale on the course no <laughs> yeah yeah crazy what i found out this weekend is that uh you know they always used to tell us that hey there's no i did the skate from alcatraz triathlon years and years ago um and i wanted to see if i could do it without training specifically for it if just what i was doing for you know for our job uh would allow me to do something like that and it did except for the bike <laughs> <laughs> like run was good. Swim was good, man. I got on that bike without having trained specifically for that. That was probably the, uh, yeah, you probably need to train more specifically for that, uh, in that sort of a thing. But, um, I remember 
you know, that. And then other times growing up that, uh, Hey, there's no great whites. They don't come in to the, to the bay, uh, because it's too shallow out there and they don't come in. Yeah. Guess what? When they started tagging these things, they're all over the place in there. Oh yeah. You know, Jeez. Oh, yeah. um, so, so that was fun to talk about this weekend. Oh yeah. You know, part of my, my, uh, college experience, I was a marine biology major because of Jacques Cousteau. Nice. Yeah, I, I had a really interesting aeronautical engineering with a minor in marine biology and all my pre-med recs. So I figured I could design cool airplanes, but I could also scuba dive on the side, you know? Awesome. Um, and in that, I, I focused mostly on what they call ichthyology, which is rays and skates, you know, cartilaginous fishes. And so sharks, and that was part of the reason why I got into free diving and spearfishing to see sharks. I, I just, I think they're the most amazing animals. When you see them move through the water, they're they're so so beautiful and perfectly designed for what they do. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the great whites there. Same thing. I was like, man, I'd like to do that swim from Alcatraz one year. And then, you know, I'm researching just as I would want to understand about the tides, the currents, how to swim. You know, if there's swim clubs there, I actually reached out to some of the swimming clubs. And uh, you know, I asked like, hey, sharks, sea lions, like, what do you? Oh no, we don't worry about any of that stuff. And then like. An hour after I got off the phone with this guy, a buddy sends me a video of, I think it was, it was at Alcatraz and it was like a tour boat. People were walking down the stairs to go back to the tour boat. And this dad is like filming his family and right beside the boat, this massive great white breaches and splashes. And everyone's like, oh my God, a shark. I'm like, yeah cancel that swim not yeah. doing that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's a great like, breeding ground right off the coast i mean it would make sense that a couple would come in oh, every yeah. now and again oh, oh yeah. wild so so you do high school and where does the where does the uh when do you decide that hey the military is my path are you thinking about that in junior high and high school and then college because i know you went there first before you you uh you joined so what is that what was that path like to to join the military yeah my honestly like i said it was just inculcated with me from a young age i knew um, and my dad had pretty much said, like, you're going to give back to this country one day for our family because mm-hmm. it's given us everything. Right. So I, I always knew that that was going to be part of my path. I just didn't know when. And actually, when I was in high school, um, I did all of the stuff for the Naval Academy and had the appointment letters. And, and at the last minute, you know, like before you, you're supposed to show up for and I didn't get my uh, commission, but like you, you're you know waiting for your commission and getting ready for plebe summer and all this stuff. And I was like, that I think I just want to go to Maryland and, and play lacrosse and just have a normal college thing. And then I'll join afterward. And so that's what I did. I went to Maryland and it was funny after Maryland, you know, I'm like, Hey, I joined the Navy. My dad was like, dude, <laughs> we could have saved so much money. Like you should have just gone from the get go, you know? <laughs> but while I was in college, my roommate, um, it is kind of funny. He, he introduced me to two things. One was Prince as a musician. He was like the biggest Prince fan and, and, uh, you know, gave me appreciation how amazing that guy actually is as a musician or was, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but then he also loved history and military history specifically. And he had this book and I, I want to say it was called doc and, and it was about a seal, uh, uh, corpsman, uh, or HM in Vietnam and his tales of, of the stuff they were doing. And, um, it was light on medicine, if you will, and more on, you know, the, the riverine ops that those guys uh, got to do back then. And, and just it like, it hooked me. I was like, man, how sick would it be to join all the things I, I want to be in the water medicine and, you know, like go play GI Joe with my buddies. I like, I do that in the woods now, like <laughs> find me up, you know? So I knew that that was probably the direction I was going. And so, um, you know, my mother, unfortunately, was battling cancer. And so I was going back and forth from school to home a lot. 
um, started struggling in school towards the tail end of it. Cause my, my, my mind was just not there. You know, it was just like, you know, my mom who, who we were really, really close. So, um, a bit of a struggle, obviously to, to, to go through that and, and obviously pales in comparison to, to what she was going through every day, but, um, nonetheless still challenging. And in, in one of those, you know, like I literally was, uh, on my way home and, uh, I pulled over, I'm sorry, on my way back to school from home, I pulled over at this, uh, you know, like a shopping center just to, you know, catch my breath, get my head right. And, uh, you know, wipe away some tears. I was just sad. You know, my mom was hurting. It's just tough to see someone you love suffer. And lo and behold, I look up and there's the recruiting office. So I'm like, Oh, let's go talk to these guys and just see. So of course you walk in and, and there's, you know, like the army poster and the air force and the Marines and then the Navy. And, and, and of course the Navy poster is at the time I didn't know what it was, but it was all seal stuff, right? So you see a guy like skydiving and coming out of the water with his gun, you know, and like right. just his mask with the rifle barrel. Oh, I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Sign me up. So, um, you know, I'd go in there and, and uh, you probably joined under the same thing. It was called the dive fair contract yep. at the time, Navy special operations. I don't think SWIP was a thing yet, but it was, uh, you could sign that and go be seal diver or EOD, whatever <laughs> part of the Navy soft you want to do. So, uh, my thing, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, I had signed the line to be a, a die fair, but also the HM, the medical contract, because I had mentioned to the guy that that's what I wanted to do, um, which was kind of funny because in boot camp, um, I had also read this Green Bray book, and I really loved the 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 clandestine nature of what it was those guys do, as as well as the cultural aspect of language and learning where they were operating and, and how. Do you to remember the book? No, I don't. I mean, I think it was called Green Green Faces or something like that. I, I'll have to find it. I'm gonna now you challenge me. I have to find that book. But you know, I was like, man, that would be kind of cool too. So in boot camp, you know, it's like in your third or fourth week where you go pick your job, your rating. Yeah. I'm all excited, like, man, I'm gonna find out about this linguist thing, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna try to knock out it. And, and you know, I get to the desk, and the guy's like, you know, name and social. He puts it in, and he's like, uh, you already have a job. And I was like, what? <laughs> And he goes, yeah, you're, you're HM. Uh, you know, what, what's that? And he's like, it's a corpsman. Oh, okay. I'm cool with medical. Yeah. Sounds good. And then that was it. And uh, so yeah, here we are. <laughs> wow. So you did, so you didn't even do the, the tryout part. You just were like, yes, sir. Corman off back, back to more pushups or making my bed or folding my clothes. Yeah. Yeah. No, at the time, you know, it was it, like, I was a bit bummed because I was like, man, you know, I already have so many languages I can pull from. And, and obviously to me, anyway, the writing's on the wall that I'm very much likely going to go back to the places that I grew up <laughs> and work. Yeah. Um, you know, I got the right complexion and the language and, you know, I, I'll fit right in. So I thought that that would be super cool to do. Right. But Ultimately, I'd, I'd signed, and just like every other, you know, everybody's got the boot camp recruiter story. Yeah, I went back to my little bunk bed that night, like, man, when I get back home, I'm gonna go see that guy. And like, <laughs> how could you? you know? Seriously. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, but hey, man, everything happens for a reason, and you know, I was like, man, medical, okay, cool. I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll dive into that from the jump. You know, I had this whole plan, like I was gonna go do the, you know, the, the cool stuff. And I was going to learn languages and then I was going to do medical stuff, but uh, no, it was medicine right up front. That's it. So when I signed up, same thing, die fair program went in, but you had to, there was some sort of a Corman component to it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I had, I'd, I'd done all my research as much as you could back then before the internet anyway. So I knew about die fair program. I knew all that, but I didn't know about this 
this Corman thing. And I went in and they said, Hey, the only thing we have open for dive fair is Corman, which is not true. Um, but I was like, okay, Hey, as long as I can get, get to the team, as long as I can get my shot to try out, that's all I want. Mm -hmm. Just my shot to try out in boot camp. I don't want to get to boot camp and not be allowed to try out. So, you know, sign away. Uh, of course, looking back, that was a complete scam with the dive fair program. You just sign on for six years, uh, and everybody got a chance to try out if they wanted to it at boot camp. Holy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's, the military. that's your introduction to the military. Welcome, oh, welcome yeah. to government service. Uh, but, uh, but I remember that and I was like, okay, Corman, I'm like, I'm like, well, I guess I'm, I don't know if I really have the aptitude for that. But, uh, I remember the guy was like, the teams need Corman. And I'm like, Roger that. Then I'm, then I'm your guy, you know? And <laughs> I'm like, I'm still about the same. My medical knowledge, as you know, from calling you to ask you things, uh, you know, uh, you know, small hole, small patch, uh, big hole, big patch. You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, I was like, okay. But then when I got to boot camp and got to that guy's desk, I think the way he phrased it was like, uh, gave me some, like gave me some sort of an opening, like, wait, you mean I don't have to be a corpsman? And I was like, and I think they gave me a list and I'm like, Seal source ratings. And I was like, oh, intelligence specialist. That sounds awesome. That's like James Bondy. Uh, I'm reading all this stuff. Anyway, boom, that. And so off I went after part of that dive fair program, try out, pass, go to IS school at Damn Neck, Virginia, and then right to right to Bud. So for whatever reason, you know, that uh that worked out for me. Yeah, you know, looking back hindsight, knowing what we know now, in those early days when you have, you know, people that you think are 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 you know, they're talking to you straight. They're not trying to pull anything over on you. You're like, okay, yeah, sure. But now understanding the way it works, you know, like those guys got to meet quotas. They yeah. got to put people in the right, you know, they need cogs over here, not over here. And, you know, so there are a couple of times, like for me in boot camp, um, when I, you know, as part of the die fair thing, once you pass that first um, seal PT test, like we would get to go work out with mm -hmm. them in the mornings aside from our, our boot camp stuff. And then it continued on in core school. So it was like at the time, uh, it was like the precursor to what became known as pre buds. Right. And so we were just always PT and, and our guy, um, our dive motivator was an HM one seal. Uh, and looking back on it, you know, years later, I'm like, that guy was just grumpy and hated the teams and he did me dirty, you know, because when I was sitting with him at his desk, he was like, you know, what do you want to do, man? And I was like, well, you know, obviously I think that the, the action part of this job is, is amazing. And, and I want to, you know, if I could just go to, to do hell week, like, I just want to know if I can do it. Um, it wasn't so much about the job because I knew the medical thing was most important to me. Um, you know, uh, sign me up. And he's like, well, it sounds like you really want to know medicine. So if I were you, what I would do is go to the, go to Mardiv first, like go be with the Marines, earn the title doc from those guys. You will do more medicine than you ever will do with the teams and, and then come back to the teams. And I was like, okay, you know, like <laughs> whatever you say, right. bro. So, yeah. you know, I, I still had to do the PTs and stuff. I, I, I go to a core school um, and then afterward, you know, like, and he was like, make sure you finish at the top of your class and you'll always get to pick where you go. So it's like, okay, check Roger check. So I'm always getting at the top of the class so I can be the first guy to pick orders. And lo and behold, out of boot, out of course school, they say, where do you want to go? And I was like, first Marta and you know, off I went. So, man, so, so, I mean, your path now looking back, it seems like a very natural path, even though you 
you know, needs of the Navy and recruiters and, and all the rest of it, misunderstanding or not understanding what's <laughs> going on quite yet because you're brand new with the whole thing. But uh, your path into medicine seemed like that was the right path for you. And thank goodness, because what you did during your time in the military <clears throat> to save so many lives, so many of our friends' lives and uh, experience what you did. And I mean, it's just in, just incredible, their, your your story, what you did for, for everyone. Um, but it seems like that was the right path. Like for whatever reason, it like that, that made sense. Um, yeah. so now you're in the Navy, but you're with the Marines and how, how is that? It was awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I, so again, this is pre September 11th right now, pre September 11th. We're, we're in, uh, <coughs> 97, you know, it's a, it's a while back. Um, I show up at Pendleton. Uh, I'd obviously gone through core school and then we had to go to, um, field medical service school, which is kind of like your infantry medical school to go be a medic with the Marines. And, uh, I show up and, you know, I have orders for first Mardiv and, and, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I was actually talking with a buddy from, from work the other day about some of the, the places we've stayed after he just came back from a, from a trip. And I checked in on a, it was like a Friday night, super late. I, I land in San Diego. I get driven to Camp Pendleton. Um, you know, now, uh, what I know to be a very grumpy Sergeant, cause I disturbed his movie watching while he was on watch. This guy literally is like, looks at my paper. He's like, follow me takes me to this building that should have been condemned. (laughs) Humans should not have been living in there. Uh, And so it was me and two other, there was two young Marines in there. And, you know, it's like a bunk room of hundreds of bunk beds and just it's disheveled and dirty. And there's what I think is asbestos. And like, I'm just like, okay, (laughs) I'll stay in here. Uh, Didn't tell us where chow was, like where we could get water. You know, you turn on the faucet in the bathroom and it's like coming out rust colored. I'm like, I'm not drinking that. I'll just, in my head, honestly, I thought at the moment, I was like, okay, I know I have a lot of discomfort ahead in my career because I want to do the special operations thing. Like this is my first test. I'm going to be thirsty and hungry all, you know, like all weekend until Monday when I, so like the next day the sun comes up go traipse around base with these two Marines and and find food and water. But Monday we check in and, uh, you know, we're with our PSD folks and, and, in those places, it's, it's all Marine, um, Mm -hmm. personnel folks, not, not Navy. And they're like, um, yeah, you, you've been recoded to FSSG, not MARDIV. FSSG is field service support group. That's like the logistics element behind Mm -hmm. MARDIV. And I was like, no, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a mistake here. Um, (laughs) And he's like, Hey man, it is what it is. Like, that's where you got to go, you know, show up there. And, and if there's an issue, like maybe you can work it out down there. So of course, being a young guy, I knew enough to know that like, if I call my detailer, I'm going to eat nothing, nothing is happening. He's going to say, sorry, dude, like deal with it. Um, so I show up at the, at the, this place and it's essentially like a warehouse of medical supplies. And yeah. to your point about having been to the right places, I, I was, I knew I was like, man, okay, this sucks, but I'm going to have a lot of time to train and get ready for the stuff that I want to do. And my chief told me there that, um, Hey, within 12 months, like you can see if there's other people that want to swap orders with you. Cause there's likely going to be a corpsman from Mardiv who's just smoked and he'll want to come sit in this warehouse and you can switch out. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm gonna put my head down. I'm going to learn this stuff. And mm-hmm. ultimately it helped me understand logistics, supply mm-hmm. chain, money, funding, all that stuff that then enabled me to really perform well down the road where I eventually got, right? Because there you're, there's much more autonomy for you to be in charge of, of everything, all aspects of your medical responsibility. So that experience was huge. 
Um, but it didn't keep me like resting, right? So four months in, there was an opportunity to um, deploy, to go on a Westpac and, and be part of the element that goes. And I was like, yo, sign me up. I'm out of here. You know, like put me in. And uh, in that, there was uh, an EOD detachment. And those guys got attached to a force recon platoon of Marines. Um, again, they needed a corpsman. And I was like, I'm your guy. So I eventually got to, you know, the special operations component, if you will, um, and had an awesome time. And those Marines were, were fantastic, eventually earned the title doc. You know, once you get called that as a young corpsman with the Marines, it's something special. Um, and then those guys would joke. I was, I was shown the dark side when we married up to a platoon of SEALs from San Diego uh, for our train up. And I was like, mm, I think, <laughs> I think what these guys is doing is better. Because I remember the first time, did you ever go to that range in Pendleton where we had the shoot houses and everything? Oh yeah. Many so times. we're sitting up there we're, it's Marine, you know, so like my sleeves are nice and tight and crisp and my camis are looking good before you, you know, you're allowed to change into your, your flight suit. Cause they, we wore those Nomex flight suits with uh, our kit and had the empty five. Yeah. Back in the day. So do we, you know, we're sitting in the, we're sitting at the range around their tables, you know, getting wrapped loading rounds and, and mags and these two 15 pack vans drive up the road hauling ass and our gun he's like who are these guys and sure enough <laughs> he should know was, already <laughs> oh yeah uh and the first thing i see is like the driver door pops open and i see like ugg boots step out and like cut off camis and a t-shirt and i'm like whoa those guys are doing it right you know like who are these guys um and ended up obviously befriending all those might have been my platoon yeah <laughs> maybe maybe but I was just in my head, I'm like, why can't we be more relaxed like those guys? And when it's time to show up and do work, they're just as turned on as we are. Like all this extra, you know, stuff, like leave it and, and no disparagement meant at all, but leave it to the conventional military with younger guys where they need to, to breed that, you know, compliance, if you will. And uh, for us, like if you're going to be in special operations, I always thought like, don't you want me thinking outside of the box and being an individual and, you know, yeah. like being what happened to all that? Myself? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, so anyway, uh, that was my first exposure to the, to the teams. Oh man. Yeah. I remember those ranges, you know, that, that was cool. Cause they had the shoot house and then they had the part that was built like a ship up above with the hatches and, and all that stuff. And then they had the ranges down below and what was it long rifle? Was that who you had to call into? Was that the, I think yep, that was, you had to call long rifle is the, uh, the name of the, to go hot down there. So, uh, anyway, that was cool. That was, that was fun going up there. I love going to those, yeah. uh, going up to those dusty, ranges. But great. Yeah, great, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I have great memories of, uh, of working up there. I don't think I did after September 11th. I think that was all pre-September 11th work up there in my first, my first Same two here. platoons. But, uh, so you get that glimpse and then, uh, then what happens? How do you make your way over to, to NSW? And do you do that before September 11th or, or after? Um, I, I was before. So, um, again, you know, you, you, this, this path at the time you're, you're going through it and you're like, man, I'm not at the place I want to be what's going on here. But in hindsight, all those experiences were so crucial to my ability to really serve the guys that ultimately I was as blessed to work with. Um, so we go on the West pack, um, you know, everywhere we went, uh, the, the seal platoon and the, and the force recon platoon, we were always together and we would go train with like the Singapore seals and the Thai seals and whoever, like we're, we're doing these joint trainings. And, 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 and for me as a young guy, um, being on the West pack was so fun. Like, you know, being on, like we would shoot on the flight deck and exercise. And, you know, it was like something out of a movie in my head. I was like, right. yeah dude, I'm getting paid to do this. How awesome right. is this? You know? Um, and just be around great people, you know, and even like 
in my uh, a lot of my really close friends were were Marines that were just infantry. They weren't part of anything I was doing. It was just other guys you met, and so you know that brotherhood when you're and, and you know the the men and women that you get to come up with. It, it's um, it's a really special thing. So being on that last pack was amazing. Um, got to. Uh, do a lot of the the surface warfare qualifications because we were deployed uh, like a deployed unit above mm. the the CO at that time wouldn't let us actually qualify but you know I still I wanted to know about the Navy right and so um, little did I know that that meant uh, polishing handrails and you know lots of cleaning and stuff but uh, you know, yeah yeah it was it was a cool experience and so uh, we eventually get to Kuwait we're working in Udari Range training you know joint forces and then the soft element of the West pack was uh, doing things uh, south of the Southern no fly zone to like get rid of Iraqi bunkers and mm. minefields and, and whatever with the EOD guys. And so it was, it was like my first time, you know, being out and, and watching things go kaboom. So it was really, really cool. Unfortunately, uh, right towards the tail end of our time in Kuwait, I get a red cross message that my mom's not doing so well. I actually get flown out of the desert in my camis, uh, taken to the the airport in Kuwait, they fly me back, and and thankfully I had some time with my mom before she passed. And then after that happened, uh, obviously my unit is deployed. So you know, in the talks with the PSD guys and or the 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 admin folks uh, for those non military people, excuse me for the acronyms, uh, our admin guys in California said, "Hey, listen, Leah, since your guys are gone." just stay home, t- take care of your family and, and do what you need to do. So, and, and I had no leave. I'm a new guy. Right. So uh, some Senator, I don't even remember who a, a friend of my uncle's uh, got involved and they, they got me like free leave, like it's a hardship, something. I can't remember what it was called, but I, I got to stay at home for some time. Uh, and then a week before the West, West packets back, I go back out to, to California and I just was struggling with my sister who at the time was a, a sophomore in college. She was doing everything, man. She was taking care of my dad, my brother, the house, the funeral. I mean, like she had way too much on her shoulders at a young age. And I felt like I was abandoning her and my family, right? So um, I got uh, um, a hardship, again, with that same um, senator, some type of hardship relocation mm-hmm. where they said, hey, listen, this guy's family is an extremist. It'd be better for him if he was near there and you know, the deal, like they typically try to like to keep you on the coast that you start. Right. So a lot of West coast guys just travel up and down West coast units and East coast, same. Right. But so I went from uh, the West coast and the only orders or spot that they could find me to actually double stuffed me into a billet was at Bethesda at the Naval medical center, which was about an hour South of, of my family's home. So doable, much better than California. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, I spent that time obviously trying to, to go home a lot. Um, you know, spend time with my younger brother who, who was really hurting. I mean, his whole childhood was, was his mom being sick, you know? So I just wanted to be around my family and then professionally, uh, man, I was so like, I was depressed. I was like, man, I left the ocean and the mountains of California. And obviously it was worth it for my family. But, um, you know, this job where I was doing the things I, I wanted to do, I was around the people I wanted to do. Um, I was actually, because of that experience, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to Bud's now. Like why wait and fulfill my entire time? I had passed that 18 month mark where you could leave early if you got accepted to a special program like Bud's. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, I gave that all up for the time being, and here I am in Bethesda. Um, and again, not to disparage anybody, but, you know, I'm dedicated at the time 
to, to being in the best shape I can be so that I'm capable of slinging some 250 pound guy with all kid over my shoulder or drag. Like I wanted to be the best medic I could be for my guys. Right. And then I got to a place where, um, I was like, does the Navy do PRTs around here? Is there standards in this place? You know, it's just, it was a whole different mindset and culture. It was very political. Um, it just was different. Right. And so I was miserable at first, but you know, again, I had a great chief at the time and I don't know about how guys feel about putting their names out there. So I, I won't, yeah. but, um, this guy was, uh, he, he was just, he was a leader, man. And he, and aside from, you know, getting you to, to swallow the hard pill that you need to sometimes and, and just do your job. He was also really good at, at understanding how you may be struggling from where I came from to where I am now and knowing what I wanted to do. So he was like, look, man, let's use this time. You, you obviously will have the, the time and flexibility to take care of your family, but let's professionalize you medically. Um, let's get you into some essentially like clinical rotations. So what do you want to do? What do you think is going to help you in your career? And so at the time with the Marines, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of, of physical therapy and trauma medicine, but thinking in special operations terms, I, I little, little to no experience with, with children, women, um, you know, so I was like, I would like to go to uh, pediatrics, preferably like NICU, PICU, something wow. more critical in nature. Um, I would like to be around uh, OB. I want to understand women's health as well as I do, you know, a young male Marine or, or SEAL. Like I'm probably going to work with them. I just wanted to expand my medical mm. knowledge. And so uh, I ended up going to the, the PICU at the time uh, at the Army Hospital, Walter Reed there. Mm. They had a, a joint. Uh, agreement to share staff essentially. And so I was working there, got a ton of experience. Uh, and then I got moved into a thing called protocol where you take care of Congress, Senate, uh, presidential, vice presidential staff. Um, and, and, you know, you, you are now a facilitator of urgent care for people and expedient care for people that don't have time. Right. And so you learn about the logistics of, of scheduling and moving things and, and getting people in and out quickly. And then lo and behold, um, 9-11 happens. And so I was actually walking out of an appointment uh, with a congressman and, you know, all these people in the main lobby are gathered around this TV. And I was like, man, what's going on here? And, you know, sure enough, I walked up uh, with the congressman and his phone is going bonkers. And we had pagers. Uh, and so my pager, when I come out of the room, you know, I, I, I turn it back on because when I'm with them, I want to silence my device. So, you know, they're mm -hmm. my concern anyway, like all, all I hear is phones going off and pages going off and I'm like, Damn, what is going on? And sure enough, uh, you know, we walk up and see the second plane hit the tower. And I was like, Oh man. Uh, <laughs> first off, I was like, can I call my old guys to see if I can, you know, come back? And like, I just, I knew that, you know, much like you and most of the other guys that we've served with, like I knew the fight was on and I just wanted to get, I wanted to be part of it. Right. And so, um, I, I was part of, um, again, another experience that really shaped my ability to care for the guys that I ultimately was, was charged with, but it was on the USS or USNS comfort, the hospital mm -hmm. ship. That was one of the deployable platforms for the hospital. And so um, they sent a bunch of us up to, to New York to help, but you know there was nothing to do so we, we, that we could do uh, constructively. And so they, they kept some folks there to help uh, with first responder care, you know, washing eyes and faces. Um, and then we came back because we were getting ready to go overseas. And so 
um, eventually hopped on the, the comfort again and uh, was in Iraq and flew medevacs. I was part of what's called Kazrak, which is the, it's essentially like the ER. It's the receiving area of the ship. So that was my first taste of, of really significant trauma. Um, and then obviously being with most of the people we were receiving aside from the, the, you know, injured Marines or, or army, uh, folks were, were Iraqis. And so obviously, you know, speaking, uh, what they speak and, and, um, you know, the experience was amazing. Lots of injured children and, and civilians. And so I got to use all the skills I had been cultivating now, uh, on a much more serious level, if you will, serious nature of, of injury and, and ultimately, that experience of managing those injuries in a, in a much more um, clean setting than, than in the dirt prepared me for the dirt. Uh, I felt like, you know, there's nothing that's going to get thrown at me out here that I haven't already seen. I'm just going to be in a dirtier environment. So after September 11th, you're, are you still at Walter Reed in Bethesda until Iraq kicks off? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're still, I'm still at uh, Bethesda and uh, actually started working to, to get back to uh, buds. And at the time that's when they switched, like you'd mentioned the job codes that you could have before. Mm-hmm. Um, now it was that they made their own rating because as you know, guys were, were seals that had, you know, they were the intelligence specialist and they were taking ratings exams for intelligence specialists and they knew nothing about <laughs> the job that those guys are doing. Right. So guys weren't advancing. And so uh, finally, the Navy does the right thing. They make SO a rating so that SEALs are then tested on things they're actually doing to advance. Um, and at the time, the, the detailer was, uh, I, I want to say it was another corpsman. I believe it was an HM2, uh, a SEAL. And he had said, hey, listen, if you really like this medical thing, then you need to stay medical. And what I would suggest is go the DMT or go the dive medical technician route, mm. because that's who we're using at the team. We're using DMTs and then we have, you know, surface IDCs and subsurface yeah. IDCs as, as our like sick call guys. But the actual medic that we're, we're taking out and, you know, uh, on training and, and dirt are these DMTs and, and, and any like Marine trained uh, medic. So I was like, sweet. Oh, well, I got the Marine thing already. I'll go do this dive thing. So I was getting ready to go to that. And then I got called to for Iraq. Uh, when that kicked off. So that's when I was on the comfort. And did you travel wasn't on the comfort until, all the way over or did you fly and meet it? No, I, I flew and uh, met it. So the, the ship went with like a minimum manning yeah. crew and then the most of the, the body yeah. flew over there. Um, and then we, you know, got brought onto the ship. So when you're at Walter Reed in Bethesda after Afghanistan kicks off, are you seeing some of those injuries come back? Are you treating those guys there? Now you're treating combat, uh, injuries, combat wounded, uh, at Bethesda and Walter Reed. Yep. Yep. Sure enough. Some of those guys start showing up and, and I mean, most of the things weren't, um, significant in nature trauma wise, Mm -hmm. because it was before the dawn of, you know, the, these IDs and IDs and IDs and all that crazy stuff that we started to see. Um, so it was, you know, like gunshots falls, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, from (laughs) as well as I do, that is some, some spicy terrain over there in some spots. And so, um, you know, we had guys that were injured from falls, uh, blast injuries. And so, yeah, I got to see, again, I got to see those injuries, uh, more in a clinical setting. So it wasn't like I was hands-on getting to, to do more than palliative care for some of those folks or, or helping them, you know, um, along the way in their rehabilitative process. But, you know, a lot of the guys, they, they, 
Um, I had more in common with them than the other medical people that were around them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we would, we would talk and, and a lot of them were, they were alone, right? Like their buddies are still over there and here they are sitting a thousand miles away from where they want to be and they're injured. And so they just, some of those guys just wanted to talk, you know, and, and, um, so I got to obviously hear a lot, learn a lot, um, and, and just, you know, mentally, um, be prepared for, for what I knew eventually I was going to be involved in. Yeah, man. And that experience on the, the comfort, uh, so the comfort and the, it's comfort and the mercy, right? Are those the two? The yes. Two, two Mercy's shit. on incredible. the West coast, yeah. comfort on the East coast. Man, what incredible platforms those are, but, um, Crazy. you do that. And then is it during that time frame where are you getting some other training in there also? Like you're going to these, uh, advanced schools and that sort of thing. And then how do you make your way back into that ground combat medic role? Yeah. So you do obviously lots of training, just like, you know, a seal would go to schools to sharpen up on comms and weapons and things as needed. Um, you know, there's different schools you can go to, uh, different experiences you can volunteer for being part of OR uh, crews. And, Again, just trying to absorb as much information as I could. Uh, like you said, eventually I'm back on the comfort. Uh, we're over there. Um, we were pre-positioned before the war actually started uh, officially, uh, you know, on the TV screens. But uh, we were there to, um, you know, yeah. serve as needed. And so we were right off, um, like the southern where Nasaria is in the southern part. You know, we're just right there in the Gulf, and and so ferrying. So I got to. I was, um, before actually, before I'd, um, gotten on the ship, I, as a, and this is how great that chief was. I, by this time, this guy's a senior chief. He's going to be a master chief soon. Um, I was an E5, so an HM1 and, or six, I'm sorry, HM1. Oh, sorry. E5, HM2. <laughs> TBI, it is man, confusing T5. by the way. Yeah. So I'm an E5, which is a, you know, a pretty low ranking, but just, you're starting to get into more leadership, right. As an enlisted guy. And they, they were at the time, the emergency department at Bethesda was all staffed by civilians, but the Navy wanted to take it back over. And so they needed, um, you know, obviously a staff for that. And, and one of the roles was to be the, the, you know, head NCO and they were looking for a senior chief or chief for that role. And my senior chief was like, I got the guy for you and he's an E5. And, and it ruffled a lot of feathers and, and, you know, certainly pissed off some people, but I walked into that job knowing like you, <laughs> he made it clear, like, don't mess this up, you know, like make me proud and uh, go do what I know you can do. So again, another experience that helped me down the road at, at the time, man, my, my, now my wife, but at the time a girlfriend, Katie was like, dude, you, what are you killing? You're killing yourself. Like you're working all the time. At, we didn't have what's called a, a coder, a coder are the people that like actually code each patient interaction so that the appropriate money is then paid to the emergency department for whatever it is that they treated and the supplies and equipments they use. So aside from working during the day or night, like I would take night shifts so my junior people wouldn't have to if they didn't feel like they were ready for those things. So my schedule was all over the place. And then on top of that, I was doing all the coding because we didn't have a coder and all the build out of our our ambulance program. I mean, like, man, I was probably the busiest I'd ever been throughout my entire career. Yeah. Uh, but it was such a great experience learning all those parts and pieces. And again, something that, that from my, you know, bag of skills that I pulled on constantly further down the road. Um, and then 
as you mentioned, that's obviously Iraq kicks off. So I get back on the comfort. And because of my experience at the hospital, they wanted me to be the the, um, the LPO or NCO of the what they call the CASRAC, the casualty receiving or ER of the ship. And so that's where I was. And then that eventually led to, hey, we need to do some medevac flights on and off this thing too. Any volunteers? And boop. <laughs> hey, this guy, I just, again, I wanted all the experience I could get. So uh, did, did some of those and then, uh, you know, came back home and then went to dive school. Oh, so regular dive school. So you have to do that first before you do dive medicine. Is that how that goes? Yep. Yep. So I came back, went to the Naval Dive and Salvage Training Center down in Panama City, Florida, uh, which coincidentally is, is right where STB school is too. So I ended up working there with a lot of the guys that I ended up with STB at. So I had such a long history with, with some of these guys. We essentially came up in the teams together and then ultimately at, at Damnak. But um, yeah, so I go down there, you have to go through dive school first. Same thing. I'm on the same program where like, I got to finish at the, <laughs> at the top. Yeah. So I get my choices of things. And so, um, knockout dive school. And how's dive you, school? Is uh, that like, is it similar to what you heard second phase was like? I've, I've heard, oh, I've heard it's that it's so like a second fun, phase and, uh, of buds, but, uh, and how, yeah, how cool is that? It was awesome. It, you know, that you remember that, uh, what was that movie with, uh, Cuba Gooding, Jr. and De Niro, yeah, yeah. uh, uh Men of Honor yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Something like that. So I just seen that actually before, uh, and I was like, "Man, that's cool!" Like hard hat diving. Dude, I love Robert De Niro's like, when it comes up those bad con, not the bad conduct, but not the good oh, yeah. con. What is that? It's like all the way up his sleeve. Like it's so oh, fantastic. Yeah. I love that oh, part. Totally. Yeah, yeah. He's got red stripes <laughs> yeah. instead of gold. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, totally. that, that's like uh, my favorite part of that movie. <laughs> you and me both. All of us that served appreciate those <laughs> yeah. guys. Like I, man, my first, my first chief when I was with the Marines actually. He was that guy. He was a chief um, and uh, had red all the way up his arm. It was awesome. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, you go to dive school, you go through second class dive school, and then you, you, um, you know, they put you in like an X division, essentially, where mm-hmm. you're waiting for enough people to show up to do your dive medical training. And so um, because of the gap there, I got to go through uh, uh, first class dive uh, training as well. And then they do what's called master diver evals, where they bring candidates down to become master divers for their few weeks of, of uh, that's like hell week for, for divers, maybe master yeah. divers. They torture those guys with, with every kind of dive accident, injury, yeah. live on the water. And I actually have an experience. I, I sent you that little uh, thing I had to do for school uh, where I got tested, but um, the that experience again was awesome because as the medic, I got to see as a, you know, like I'm an actor at this point, I'm, I'm wearing the hard hat. I'm faking the, the, you know, dive hit or injury, mm. um, and seeing what these guys and the DMTs are doing. So me, I'm like, learn, 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 learn. So then eventually I get into DMT school and same thing. They're like, dude, you finish first, you get to pick where you go. And so I knew that I wanted to go to the back to the NSW side of things. And so, uh, as it would be, SDV was uh, available, and I was like, "Dude, send me there." And so that's where I ended up after dive school. No way. So in dive, so 
but is there another dive medicine part of that after dive school? Or do you oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So dive, how yeah, was dive it? What, what challenged you during that during that course? Because you've been so comfortable, so comfortable in the water, um, and uh, obviously you've been doing the medical stuff, and you've been now in the military for a little while. Uh, you got got some mileage on you. You've been over on the comfort. You've seen you've seen a lot at this at this point. So uh, any, uh, any any stumbles along the way? Any uh, or did you just uh, it, not sail through? But was it was it challenging? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly challenging. I, I, you know, as far as the things that I personally was doing to myself to, to, you know, embrace discomfort, I I just, I never wanted to be like, for example, when we're training, you know, the days it's cold, the rain is blowing sideways. Like we all know it's cold. I didn't want to be the guy being like, man, it's cold. Like (laughs) those guys like made me, you know? Right. And so I was just like, um, instead of working out in the gym, it's raining sideways outside. I'm going to go work out outside in the rain or snow or, you know, like I just wanted to harden my mind, if you will. And so I, I think I went to dive school with, with an advantage mind state wise, mm-hmm. but it still was, I mean, it's challenging, yeah. you know, from, from and you do pool comp and everything, right? Like they come down and they, yeah. they pound you yeah. and they, that's... Oh yeah. They hated me during that. Cause I could hold my breath forever. I love pool <laughs> comp. Know? That was my favorite. Cause it was like the yeah, one time yeah. where you're, you're not putting a hands on the instructor, but it's not like you're just getting yelled at and like doing push-ups and sit-ups and oh, you know, yeah. you're just not like just taking it. You get to like, you know, push back a little bit by showing them what you can do. And there's that physical interaction so that mm-hmm. and then the life-saving when you like have to pull the different people over oh, yeah. space to the side of the pool or whatever and they take yeah. you down and slam you on the bottom like that was like all right you know from jujitsu and everything i was like knew you know when to relax and then when to when to do my thing um so i love that those were like the two times that i can remember where you get to kind of go mano a mano with an instructor rather oh, than yeah. just like get yelled at and doing push i was like yes sir whatever oh, yeah. Yeah. um <laughs> and i used to i used to be a little sneaky like in the pool you know when they would do like the the beehive where we're all like oh, yeah. packed into a tight area you know <laughs> and you're treading but as you get moved to the center you ultimately get pushed underwater and then you got to so they're like instructors are pulling you down and they see you and getting you back up to the edge. And like, I would fight those guys like, Oh, thought, so I thought you were another student instructor. Sorry. You know, <laughs> nice. like, uh, you know, uh, the drown proofing, obviously getting hits in the pool with your gear on and stuff. I was just always, I was calm because yeah. again, with free driving, not that you have a chance to breathe up, but I, I knew the reflexes. I knew the air hunger. I knew how much time I had after those things. So I never mm. panicked in the pool. The thing that was like, challenging that i hated was when they would fill up the mask with water and like yeah. make you lay down and sing or, kicks or, and stuff yeah yeah or like put your head right under the surface so you're upside down over the edge and yeah. they're like talk and you're like oh, yeah you know it's like getting waterboarded yeah, yeah before yeah, it was exactly a, yeah <laughs> when when people talk about waterboarding, i'm like that's not that bad right, <laughs> right. i think that's, well, that's the whole part way worse yeah us. yeah well, that's the whole part of that whole part of of, of that training is to show that you're comfortable in the water um, mm-hmm. and so, so just being comfortable down there is, uh, you're not going to panic obviously is just as important as knowing, you know, what to do and knowing the, the technical aspects of what to do when, um, but, uh, and you were obviously comfortable in the water. I haven't thought of the beehive thing for a while, nor have I thought of the mask oh, thing for a while, probably yeah. reasons that I, that I blocked those out of my, out of my head. I remember all those fun things. And, you know, ultimately <laughs> it was so cool to, to have a hard hat on and dive. And then you mm-hmm. learn from, from like you'll have some of the divers that are there. So when you're going through second class school, the instructors will have first class divers, already maybe fleet divers, kind of helping them with the students Mm. um, to start getting them into the mode of being a dive supervisor, Right. right? 
And so those guys would whisper in your ear like, hey, man, when the stage, which is the thing you stand on and you stand face plate to face plate with the other hard hat diver and your arms are kind of, you know, intermeshed and you're looking at each other so that you could recognize if on the way down or up, my buddy's having hit by his eyes or wow. you know something. So, you, you know, eventually they're like, hey, listen, once you get like 20 feet down, just sit back to back and start pulling umbilical down. So you have this big pile of umbilical. So when you hit the bottom, you could just run around, you know, you're like, really? hey, cool. So you like, you, you have, to me, it was so much fun nice. uh, getting to, to walk around on the bottom of the ocean in, you know, a hard hat wow. and, and you just, I'm like, man, this is, this is so cool. I'm getting paid to do this. Oh, you you're know? doing the stuff you dreamed of growing up. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was super yeah. fun. And then eventually some of us went down, uh, I had to do, uh, you do additional training in the, in the hyperbaric chamber and then the mixed gases. And so we go to this place in, in the keys and there they have an old Mark five, uh, fully operational with the canvas suit and everything, wow. the boots, and then the old Heliox, uh, Mark five as well, which is like, you know, couple hundred pounds of, of stuff. It, it is amazing, but I got to die with that thing. So it was really cool. That's awesome. And then you end up at SDV. So now finally you're at, you're at a, you're at a SEAL team. Yeah. I'm, I'm finally at a SEAL team. You know, it's fun. My introduction to that, as you remember, is like you, you get, uh, I showed up with, uh, I think two of the frogs that I knew from Panama city, they were in SDV school and then a couple admin people and they're like, you know, we have our grinder PT sessions every morning. And so the CEO brings us all out. And he's like, Hey, we got some new guys here. And, and I'm the, the guy closest to him. And he's like, Hey, why don't you tell everybody about yourself and this? And I was like, good morning. And my name is, and they're like, shut up. And, you know, everyone. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Whoa, uh -huh. what's going on here? You yeah. know? And I was like, Oh yeah, I remember this yeah. having fun with each other, you know? And they're like, next, you uh -huh. know? And then the next guy's like, right. I'm in their life. And the whole thing. But <laughs> I remember uh, well. yeah, I was like, man, I'm in the right place. Nice. This is it. So, nice. And how long are you there before you, uh, you transition East, you do a deployment. Cause I know they do different things out there deployment wise, but do you, uh, do you get to do some real world operations while you're there or what, how long are you there? Yeah. So I'm ultimately, I ended up, uh, I think I was there just shy of four, four years. Mm -hmm. I ended up um, getting pulled a little early, but um, yeah. So my, my first thing, obviously uh, they're not going to just put you in an SR or, or the reconnaissance. The, mm -hmm. So in the SDV uh, there's the diver platoons and then there's the SR or the seal uh, platoons, the surveillance and reconnaissance side of it. Like the guys that go out in the SDV and then the guys that launch the SDV. And, and luckily for me as a diver, I knew like, man, I'm going to get to do all these jobs and, and learn mm. all this stuff. So I was, I was excited about it. But at the beginning, you're just fully support. They want you understanding your, your place, yeah. learning who does what and how it, how it works. And, and so I ended up um, being support for a combat swimmer block of training. And I, I, you know, I remember when I went through that stuff in Pendleton and, um, you know, I was like, man, this is, it's fun. And then obviously those guys get introduced to the SDV, um, you know, the back, the, the passengers, if you will. And I just remember seeing like, everybody was always throwing up and nauseous. And I'm like, man, these are these guys, babies, like what's going on. And then they're like, Hey, you want to ride in this thing? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, sure. And oh, oh my, it's, it's, dark all you have is like a little light and button where you can communicate emergency uh you know and some other codes that you can pass the guys driving and navigating but when they would do like their shallow water peaks in the harbor you know this thing is like sloshing with the surface and and you're just in this dark box and you know you're sitting four dudes 
side by side and, and you're stacked up on each other. So you're like, I'm resting my arms on somebody's legs and leaning against their, their, you know, Drager and, and same on the other side. And I just remember like, I'm going to throw up, you know, sure enough. So it's like, move the, oh. <laughs> the valve, you know, and I was, you're like so nauseous. So again, another thing, uh, you know, got humbled, but, uh, awesome, awesome experience. Got to, got to be part of the DDS side of things or the diver side mm-hmm. of things. And, um, the SR side, uh, deployed on a, on a sub. And, uh, again, got to see another part of the Navy in the submarine itself. That, that was so cool. So, yeah, no, SDVs like, they're, they're like kind of the one thing that's left out there. That's, you know, people don't know that much about yet. You know, there's been so much news coverage of different, uh, SEAL missions or, you know, just military in general you know, over the last mm-hmm. 20 plus years now. Um, but SDV still has that little piece that's, uh, it's still, uh, you know, fairly unknown and, and secretive and they do some, some cool stuff for, for those listening that are, that are interested into going, going that route. It's a, what a spot I'm, I'm, I remember when they called out our names at the third phase of buds and they were like, you know, letting you know where you're going to go. And in my head, I'm like, Oh man, I do not want to go to <laughs> SDV. Cause I being in the back of that thing, like shut in, it just didn't, it didn't appeal. Um, you know, uh, so I'm glad that when they, when they called my name for SEAL team five, I was like, Whew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do it right. You adapt, but you know, oh, yeah. given my first choice, um, you know, but now looking back and knowing a little bit more about what they actually do out there and some of the things that they, that they've done, I think it's pretty cool. Um, and it's an amazing, amazing, amazing mission. If you have the aptitude mm-hmm. for it, um, man, that's awesome. And so you do that, you spend your time there and then how do you, how do you get picked up for, for going East? Yeah. So, um, one caveat really quick for all the, the seals out there that, that have, that are at SDV and, and are wishing they were somewhere else. Like, I don't think there's from, from all that I've seen, I, I got to, because medics were of short supply while I was at SDV, I did TAD with seal team 10 and eight, you know, like I got to see, uh, what, what those guys do as well. And as far as the ability to endure mm-hmm. suffering. I don't think anybody can hold a candle to what those seals at SDV do and divers. I mean, yeah. you're in the water for 10, 12 or more hours sometimes. And, and, um, you know, on the back of a submarine and it's it just, it, it is a tough, tough line of work. So the guys that come out of there, once I got to the command, I would always see them excel because, yeah. you know, in there, they're like, dude, I am not going back <laughs> to that SDV. Like you've got to kill me to make yeah. me leave this place, you know? Um, so while I was at SDV, um, obviously things are overseas still, still going on. And um, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is right down the road from Little Creek, would, would use um, augments, right? So just plus up their guys. And obviously they have multiple places that they go and man and, and work overseas. And so I, with my, by that time I had already done a, a, a DDS platoon. So I was part of the diver crew and, you know, rigged out the SDV on the sub and, and got to dive off the sub and all that stuff. It was awesome. And then I got to be part of the SR platoon. And those were the guys that we then got pulled over to, to damn neck to augment. Oh, and nice. so, um, yeah, you know, at the time, and, 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 um, knowing my place, obviously I'm a, I'm a sport guy, I'm a medic, I'm an augment, right. Oh. Or, or a direct support guy. And, and I, I, but even in my head, I was like, man, this thing, like when we want to go to the range, you got to, you know, plan it weeks ahead and you, it might not even get approved. At SDV, you mean? But yeah, yeah. you got to ask to get your rifle to go to the, this, that. And, and it was just like, I thought this was a SEAL team, like where we could train, you know, and be ready for, for the balloon to go up. Right. And, and at, at damn neck, you get there and like, these guys have ultimately, 
you know, these cages, the size of, of small garages where they have all their toys. Right. And I was just like, and, and even the seals, I was, they're like, this is the seal team yeah, I yeah. joined for, you know, it's like, you mean I can just, just keep my gun and I can go to the range when I want. And, you know, so, uh, obviously in our, in your own armory, but it's just, it was, it was easy to easier to train there. Right. And so, um, man, I was so blessed from, from the time I augmented, I essentially never left. Um, they were like, uh, they needed medical people as well, both in the support capability and in the dirt. Um, so, you know, I was a, a hot commodity and, and more than willing to oblige when, you know, okay, these guys are done. Do you want to stay for the next crew? And, and I was like, I'm yes, I'm not going anywhere. So ended up doing a lot of time, um, in Afghanistan, so you're just augmenting still at this point. You're not, your stuff's still yeah. in like Hawaii in your apartment or something. Oh no, I, I was at SDB too. So I was in Little Creek. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cause they switched at some so, point in my mind. I'm, I'm thinking everything yeah. switched out to, uh, to Hawaii, yeah. which it did at some point in there. Yeah, it did. It did later. Uh, but although now I, I uh, it is, back. they have an element back here on the East coast, but, um, so yeah, I, you know, Katie, the dogs and, and, and they're oh, perfect. Uh, you're already there. You're co-located. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. By this time she had moved down and, uh, you know, but then, uh, I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See so yeah, I'll be back in 18 months, oh, yeah. you know, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I do a, some back-to-back deployments with, with the guys over there. And then when I got back at SDV, um, a couple of us that had stayed on like myself and, and the two seal snipers stayed on longer than the rest of the platoon. And so they had an award ceremony, uh, for the three of us, uh, from the stuff from, from damn neck. And, you know, I made the mistake of, of having my family there and here, like, I don't talk to anybody about what I do and where I go. And, uh, other than with the guys, I, I do those things with, you know, and like, my family thought I worked in a hospital and, and here they are, like when the CEO is reading this award thing about this fierce battle in the mountains and, you know, this and that, and, you know, I like, I, after I get the thing, you know, I do my kick turn and, and I like looking out at the audience with my, my two buddies and my buddy beside me, he sees my wife, his wife, and then like all of our families crying. And he was like, oh shit, wow. <laughs> shouldn't have done that, you know? And then, so sure enough, they were like, I thought you worked in a hospital, you know? Uh, but because of the, the, um, you know, I, I'd done my job and, and they were like, man, this, this guy's on point for, for medical. Like, Hey man, we want you to come back over here. So, uh, I was able to leave, um, SDV a touch early and then head over and screen and, and got picked up thankfully. And then, you know, spent almost 15 years, uh, yeah. Right about walking amongst giants. Man. Well, you're one of those giants brother. And, uh, I mean, there are guys that are walking around today that, uh, that are taking their kids to soccer and baseball because, uh, because you did what you did. Um, hey man, that was my job. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny too, a, a little segue. I know I'd, I'd share this with you, but while I was at SDV, I was still trying to go back to buds and I was like, <laughs> fine, I'll drop Corman. I just, because by that time I was like, man, I'm doing this job. I know I can do the job yeah. and I'm pretty sure as long as I don't fall apart or break something, mm-hmm. I can probably make it through buds. Um, you know, nothing's a sure thing, but I, I thought odds are on my side. I'll do it. And at the time I was an E5 and they were like, okay, listen, um, now, because we have so many guys coming in, we really don't want anything above an E4 because obviously Mm. the risk there is like they would get an E5 or an E6 who then shows up at a SEAL team one day and is the LPO with zero SEAL platoon experience, right? right? Which understand it. 
So I was like, the guy's like, do not, you cannot make rank. And I'm like, dude, I'll, I'll fail the test. Like I'll stay in E5, you know? And so like my package is going through and then I get selected for sailor of the year and then have to go out to San Diego to compete for NSW sale of the Dang, year. Dude, because I didn't of that, know that. That's awesome. They, they make me an E6 and I'm like, so you got it? You, it. you got failure of the year? Uh, yeah. Uh, for the East coast. That's awesome. Yeah. And this, you get, you get so promoted right funny. away. Is that how that works? Like you, you yeah. they promote you. Nice. Uh, yeah. But it was a killer because I was in the room and, and my chief, you know, he's like, Hey, look, man, I know you really want to do the things you want to do, but like we had to nominate somebody and I can't think of anybody else wow. that deserves this opportunity. So like, please represent yourself. Well, answer the questions as best you can. And so they ask you a lot of geopolitical questions, like, what do you think about what's going on over here and this and that? And, you know, they just want to make sure that you you are understanding of what's going on around the, the world and, um, you know, then ask you some medical stuff and diving stuff mm-hmm. and tactical stuff, whatever. And at the very end, I was like, hey, with all due respect, can you give it to that other guy? Because like, <laughs> if you guys promote me, I can't go to Bud's. And they're like, don't worry, bro, you're good. Uh-huh. And then, you know, Sure enough, they, they promoted me. So oh, like you said, the path I was meant to walk, I was meant to walk, but uh, that's uh, that's when I knew I was like, okay, well, looks like I'm not going to get to go do that. But these guys uh, want me to come work with them. So, I mean, what a blessing and an honor. So yeah, I'll do it. Well, I mean, truth be told, you probably, I mean, 100%, you saw more combat and did more doing walking this path than taking that time to go to buds, wait for your class, maybe. go through buds, maybe get hurt, roll back, True. keep going, maybe True. do your first SEAL team, then be a new guy, and then maybe get deployed <laughs> to, you know, Columbia or the Philippines or something like oh, that. Um, and then work your way up and okay, finally now I'm in, in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan for one deployment. Yeah. Instead, yeah. you go right into the fire um, and keep deploying yes, with those guys, getting after it and, uh, I mean, just crushing it for all those years. Um, so at this point, you're on essentially three months. You're going down range, and then you're coming home, and you're training, and then you're doing it again, and then you're four months or whatever it worked out to at that time, coming back and just boom, 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 just going and getting after it. And that's what most of your time was like there. Is that right? Yes, sir. As you know, like most of my buddies that were still at SDB, you know, you, you keep touch with with your brothers they were doing deployments where, you know, they're over there for nine months and stuff doing like VSO and, uh, you know, uh, village uh, stabilization operations, sorry with my acronyms. Um, and so they're doing, you know, I think kind of non-traditional SEAL missions, but it was just where they got plugged into. And those guys were like, man, I'm over here for, for way too long and, you know, whatever. And at the command, like you mentioned, we were on a much shorter cycle and, and, you know, obviously being careful with yep. what I, what I say, but I think this is all publicly known. Um, we, we were on four month deployments and, and so we would have the traditional four months over there. But when you came home again, since at the time, like when I first got to the command, um, each of the squadrons had one, maybe two medics. Um, and obviously internal to the squadron, there's lots of little pieces there that are always traveling. So even though I was assigned to two troop, um, if the other guys were traveling when my guys were home, you know, chilling with their fam and working at stuff that obviously at work and training at work, I was still on the road with other guys because they still needed support. So, um, yeah, I was always gone. I had usually about a week, maybe two, if I was lucky after deployments where I could hang with Katie and, and then ultimately when, when there was kids, um, be with kids. But for a long time, I think for, I think it was about nine years, like I would always like I'm getting in trouble. Like I'm choosing to, to, to travel all over the world, but my chief would be like, yo dude, 
we got to slow down the travel here because you know you're the, one of the most traveled people at this place yet again um and the navy doesn't like that so um but you know they're not going to say no they need mm -hmm. the bodies and i knew that like you said i just wanted to go work whether that was um you know training uh or even like as much as i hated it being a support guy at training events like if i wasn't allowed to participate but had to be there mm -hmm. to, um, you know to provide medical support all of those experiences ultimately um are great in, in shaping your ability to care for people and turn the the you know put the right hat on for the right job so to speak i knew that like if i was going to go you know sit at a range even if I was I was doing something else and they're like, hey, man, we need a medic to just go sit at the range for, for now. OK, man, I'll do it because I knew just like I wanted to train. My guys wanted to train. They needed yeah. to train. So my job was to facilitate their ability to train by a, being healthy and then being medical support wherever they needed it. And so, um, you know, even though I didn't like a lot of the, the jobs, sometimes like you still got to do them. And if you're going to do it, do it the best you can. And, um, you know, it there was so much that I got to do there. Uh, like you said, it, it was just, I, I truly feel I got to walk amongst giants, man. And you're getting so much experience at this. I mean, you had a lot of experience before, but now it seems like that pedal goes to the ground and you're just getting oh. so much experience here. Um, do you remember what was your first firefighter? What was that, that like, um, after having done so much in this, in this lead up as far as training goes, but now you're in the thick of it. And, uh, what was that experience like? Uh, funny, I, I, you know, like there's so much when we watch the videos from, from, you know, uh, camera footage over there, there's always like this laughing and, you know, um, obviously when, when moments allow, but you know, like you, you have this levity to, to get you through what is what I would describe as an otherworldly experience. Like the fact that we're at a place where, where I am, am actively engaged in trying to end another human's life. And they're trying to do the same with me. I'm like, everything's we failed like and now we just got to do what we got to do here right and and that is i got to survive my buddy's got to survive so after that first time it was actually kind of funny we were we were in the mountains uh in afghanistan and i was with uh one other seal from my unit and then we were with two guys that used to work with us but that were now working with someone else um and we had a group of afghanis with us that were trained to to and those guys were warriors mm -hmm. and it was it was really great to to have that experience but it was funny we we had creeped over we were taking mountains to establish uh what they those bcps the border checkpoints those big forts that you probably remember over there and so we had an area uh right on the border east of Kaust where there was all the you know the rat lines of, of explosives and ammo that was coming in from pakistan and, and you know young marines and, and army guys are getting injured and you know, school kids are, are getting blown out. It's just crazy the stuff that that you see being done to, to other humans over there. And so, you know, our job was one, go shut off those rat lines and, and two, take over a bunch of these mountains because we're going to build some new BCPs out here uh, for the Afghanis to man. And um, we had crested over this, this ridge at, uh, you know, it's obviously pitch black, it's nighttime. And we're looking for this poo site or this, um, you know, point of origin where these mortars are coming from at us. And so one, uh, we had landed on a, on a mountaintop a few days earlier. So obviously they know someone's there because they saw some helicopters touch mm -hmm. down and take off. Right. And, but they don't know where we are. So a lot of it's like recce by fire. Right. And so 
me and, and a couple of these guys, it was me, uh, the seal I work with. And one of the, the, um, guys that used to work with us that was now working with some other folks, mm-hmm. you know, we traverse to this other mountaintop and we're, we're sitting, I, I like creep over the edge and, you know, I'm, I have an islid because we have air over top to try to find this thing to, to eliminate it. Right. And, um, I, we see a mortar go off. And so I rope it or I circle laser it for everybody listening. Yeah. So we have this thing that's essentially like a lightsaber that shoots out this beam of light that can, you know, the airplane can see. And so, uh, my buddy, he's talking to the airplane, he's a training qualified JTAC. And, and he's like, Hey, Elias rope that thing again. So I, I, I rope the plane and then, or circle the plane. So he's like, okay, I see you guys. And then I rope the thing. And then this rocket, like it was like, a, you know, those BM ones, those big uh, metal tubes that they would stuff with these old rockets this rocket comes flying at us and I hit the deck and, you know, like I hit the ground and I look up and both of them are standing like, what are you doing down there? <laughs> you know, as this thing sails over us and it was like, you know, 20 feet probably over our heads, but close enough. Yeah. It's close enough. Head. Yeah. Like in nods, I'm like, that's coming right <laughs> at us. you know. And so, so I, I hit the dirt and then, uh, the guy again, I don't want to say his name, but he's like, you okay, buddy? And I was like, oh, dude, (laughs) my first thing. And like, I'm diving in the dirt. Um, So that was the the first time, like getting something shot towards me where where I didn't uh, maintain my street cred. But other times, you know, it's like, I never really, um, we trained so, so much. And obviously there's nobody better than you guys at, at overwhelming violence, right? Like you wash through a place like water and, and it's on our terms most of the time. So, um, and, and being the medic, it's not like I'm the point guy kicking through the gate or or going over the wall. Um, but obviously being involved in, in some of that stuff, it never really occurred to me at the time, like, you know, Oh my God, I'm getting shot at, or this is freaky or whatever. It was just like, you know, move, communicate and understand like in my head, based on the, the the map or the GRG that I looked at, like where I was in that picture, mm-hmm. where everyone else was, because ultimately I may get called to a certain side or something. And I, I wanted to know, you know, like just maintain that level of, of um, understanding, if you will. And so a lot of those times I never really had a chance after like when everyone else was was looking for things after the the, the party was over you know, like Intel or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. That's typically when I got called, like now it's your turn to do work unless someone, you know, unfortunately where it was injured during the actions. Mm-hmm. So most of the time I was, I was, you know, treating any of our guys or our dogs, if they had injuries. Um, and then ultimately any Afghani, uh, you know, woman, kid, mm-hmm. uh, even, even the, the, the man, the bad guy, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, you know, we, we took care of everybody. So, um, that's typically like, I was so involved in that most of the time, especially if it was a case that required my care all the way on the helicopter back to the fob and in the fob mm-hmm. to hand off. So a lot of times I was just like mentally exhausted by the time we got back. And by the time I would get back from the, the cash or the, the medical, um, tent, you know, I'd come in and by then the boys would already be around the fire pit, you know, with cigars and guitars and, mm-hmm unwinding. And, and I was just like, I just want to melt into a bed right now, <laughs> you know, because it's going to be light soon. And the rest of the base is going to be up making noise. Like I need to try to get a couple of Z's. So it's just like a whirlwind, honestly. 
And how about like your first time when you have to, you know, do fire maneuver or you're part of an element that's uh, that's that's a maneuvering element. Um, what is that like your first time? Have you trained so much that you're just like on autopilot or is it, hey, I'm a uh, as, as a medic here, I'm thinking about these, you know, these other things like, hey, where we're going to go if somebody somebody gets hit, where I'm going to take them, where I'm going to do the work, where I'm going to put that helo down or have somebody put the helo down for me to get them out of here. You're thinking about all these other things. But um, what was that like the first time that you're maybe a compound assault or maybe you're you're ambushing or you're getting ambushed or you have to maneuver elements and you're now you're part of that maneuver elements and you're a gun in the fight. You're not just, uh, maybe you're not just thinking about the medical stuff. Maybe you're in that that fight. What was, what was that like for you? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, again, like we, I feel that um, anyone that ends up in that world, special operations as a whole, but obviously, you know, at, at an SMU, you, you, the guys that I was lucky enough to, to support, they, we trained all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. So I, and you develop um, an understanding of what people are going to do, how they talk, how they move and, and on and on. And, and you just, it's like a dance, right. And, and, um, seeing it done well and, and executed to, to near perfection most of the time is again, like I said, I got to walk amongst giants. I felt lucky enough to even be there and see some of the things that I saw people do on the battlefield, superhuman things. And, and, and um, you know, most of the time that it, those things go unrecognized. And, and so again, I was just like a student the entire time, um, you know, getting in those situations where you're in a gunfight or getting ambushed or, or the times where we would, you know, do those things that like set up, uh, you know, false exfils and, and, and try to, um, get the targets that you're after. Um, you know, it's, it's surreal for sure. I, I, so many times, like if you ever try to go back and recollect, we didn't really, you know, the wins are the wins are great. Like, Hey, mission success and jackpot touchdown, whatever it was that you were after you got. And, and here are the, the, the spoils of intelligence and, and things that we can learn to, to be even better at this. But it was really what I saw when we would lose, um, you know, a guy, unfortunately, or, or any of the things where there were some um, failures or, or hiccups, if you will, some missteps where the way that that was analyzed and picked apart and learned from in such um, not, not um, without emotion, obviously, if someone was injured or hurt, like those things, the guys, you know, it, it, it kills us all. Um, and obviously, that doesn't even compare to what that guy or, or his family ultimately uh, goes through. But, you know, aside from it's like, what can we learn from this? How can we be better? And so there, there's so much um, that, that you get to learn and, and see there. So again, I was just, I loved it all, man. I, I there's so many times where now operating in the business world, I, I, I will joke uh, <laughs> to my wife or my co-founder, who's also, he's a retired team guy. I'd be like, I miss war, dude. War was so much easier than this. Like, you know, I know what my job is. We're on the same piece of paper. We all have the support we need to go get whatever it is we're, we're, needing to do done. And, and obviously, uh, things are a little different business. People uh, have, may have their own motives, but, uh, it was a special, special experience, man. I, I, as hard as it was sometimes, especially like, you know, the times I had to knock on some doors and, and do that whole thing. Uh, man, other than that, it, it was, it was a dream job. Yeah. And you're thinking, 
tactically on the ground because you're part of these maneuver elements operating at the, the highest levels of special operations. And then you're learning along with those guys about how to do it better the next time, how to refine it a tiny bit more to get better and better with mm -hmm. each operation. But then you're also thinking on the medical side of the house, um, like a, as an operator, I'm thinking, okay, I got a couple of tourniquets. Okay. You throw one of those things on, I call you. Um, but you're thinking a lot more in depth about that than, uh, than, than I certainly ever was. I mean, we know the med plan, we know all those things, contingencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, we talk about all those contingencies at each phase of the operation, the medical contingencies, all of those things. Uh, we're getting better. We're learning from combat medicine, learning lessons because now we're in sustained combat operations. Uh, and, and we're incorporating that into our plans. Um, and, you though are thinking about both. You're thinking about the tactics and then you're thinking about how to get better at your, uh, at your focus on the medicine side of the house and the combat medicine side of the house. Um, that's a lot to, to think about, especially when you're working on a friend, a teammate, uh, whose family mm -hmm. that, you know, um, what was it like to work on, on somebody like the first time that something, uh, uh traumatic happened on, on the battlefield? Yeah. You know, um, first off, I'll say like when, when we think about all the planning and stuff, I was obviously fortunate enough to be around guys that I considered experts at whatever it was that they were tasked with doing. Right. And so I would marry myself to the recce guys or, or the, the, the snipers, the, the advanced party guys to understand the routes we were going to go. And then along the way, um, analyze train and think like, okay, based on historics, we know that we might get ambushed here or here. So where are my HLZs or my helicopter landing area is going to be for medevacs? Um, and then, so you, you learn to plan properly before you even go do something. And as you know, we're going along and they're calling certain route points, like, okay, we're here. We're, I knew that, okay, now I'm moving on to the next set of HLZs, the next set of HLZs. And so I just, my job was to be the medic there. And like you said, I'm a, I'm a gun when needed, but obviously my, my duty is to take care of those guys to, to do my utmost to make sure that, you know, everybody comes home. And so, um, uh, being around people that execute on such a high level makes you execute at a high level, because if you don't, uh, the thing I loved about the, that place and, and any SEAL team or even that recon unit I was at is like meritocracy. If you deserve to be here, you will be here. If you don't need to be here, that's okay. You're going to go somewhere else though. You know, um, as far as working on people, I always looked at it. Like I, I trained myself and, and again, going back to the experience on the comfort when I was in the Kazrak, when I started seeing children come in, um, you know, early in the war, when the Iraqis were retreating, they would shoot women and kids and, and, you know, men, civilians, because they knew that once the Americans got there, they would stop to care for those folks and then thus enable a retreat hastily for those Iraqis. So a lot of the people we saw were, were Iraqi civilians shot by Iraqi forces. And you would see these kids with horrific, horrific injuries. And it killed me, dude. Um, I didn't even have kids at the time. I just, you know, I'm seeing this young, innocent, fragile being that, you know, was, uh, you know, treated violently by another human. And so I, in that time I was like, okay, I need to steal my mind and, and focus on the work that I need to do and not the emotional component. So I almost became like a car mechanic, right. Where, like you said, little hole, little patch, big hole. It's just looked at it like, okay, what I need to do, keep this engine running. It needs air. It needs its fluids. It, you know, it was like, it was just very systematic, my approach. And, and, you know, from your training with, with some of the combat medicine we do with the team, you know, 
you're just going through protocols and I'm, it's like a series. I think like trauma medicine is a series of, of adjustments. It's like flying a plane. All you're doing is making corrections the whole time. Right. So it's like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then when I'm done all these things, I'm going to come back to the top. I'm going to recheck all my work, make sure nothing else is going down. However, comma, when it's someone you love, you know, like the, the, you know, we, we say long live the brotherhood and, you know, like the men and women I got to work with, and I'm sure you feel the same. It's almost like a bond beyond your family, especially when it's forged in gunfire, right. And war that, that experience, is just, again, otherworldly. And so you form these really deep bonds with those people that go beyond anything else I've ever felt. And, and you, you know, knowing their, their girlfriends or wives and kids and that stuff certainly uh, will swirl around in the back of your head. And, you know, what, what I find more difficult is, you know, if the, if the, the guy is, is unconscious or talking, uh, especially if he's talking, I'm really good at making sure that that situation stays calm. It's better for him and it's better for me it's, and, and everyone around. But then, you know, once like the boys start getting around and the, they're losing their mind because that's the brother right there, um, you know, you, you end up having task saturation, right? Because now I'm managing my patient, I'm managing a crowd. I'm managing comms to the helicopters. I'm managing assets. And, and so it is a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do uh, when it's called upon. And so I just always said like, hey, man, if I approach this like a mechanic and I remove any feeling whatsoever about who I'm working on and what's happening here, I will be, I will be better to that guy than if I'm like, yo, bro, I'm hanging there. I look, you know, like the stuff you see in movies, like that's not going to help anybody. So um it was tough for sure. And more so afterwards, right? Like after I've handed that guy off to the medevac, or if I've gone all the way back with them to the, the fob and, and in the medical tent or you know, the facility, wherever we go to, once it they're like someone else's charge and you have that moment to like collect your gear and slump against the wall, those are the times where like, you know, I am not ashamed to say, like, I would be overcome with emotion, like crying my ass off because I'm like, man, did I do everything that I could have for that guy? Did I do the right thing for him? And then I would be analyzing everything I did. Did I do that right? Did I do, should I have done this? You know, it's like, I just go back again, like the guys that I was around, how they would analyze their performance on ops. I needed to do the same. So for me, it was just, you know, like try to be very analytical about it, try to remove emotion from it. But it certainly is is crazy, crazy challenged. So you get back and you're running through those after actions in your head. How could I have done it better? Um, are you are you are you sharing those uh, those lessons learned on the medical side of the house with other other medics? Is there a uh, was there a way to share that? And then uh, is how did you deal with the uh, on the emotional side of the house when you came up with something like, man, I could have done that differently, or if you made a mistake or, or something or there, Hey, we could have done this a little faster or I missed this or, or whatever it is. How did you, did you look at those as, uh, uh, as ways to get better going forward, obviously, but then how did you deal with that, that emotionally? Um, or is it just part of the, part of the job? And that's just, just what it is. Yeah, no, it certainly is, is part of the territory. There's so many things that come up. I mean, even today, and I'm sure you, you feel the same, there's days where, where I'm in like so much physical pain and, and, or what dealing with some old injury where you just think like, man, that's part of the cost of doing that work. Like we all work in this world and we stack up a lot of bills and one day they come due and emotional ones are, are, they're part of that. And so, you know, at the time, 
um, I, I never wanted to say like, Hey, I'm having a tough time here. Not that I ever did, but like, um, you know, I, I need some time to, you know, deal with this or, cause I was worried like, okay, that's cool. You take a knee, but you're off the ride. And I watch, you know, the, the train disappear into the distance. So, uh, you know, you know, the deal back then guys didn't want to say if they're injured, like I treated my, my own battlefield injuries quietly because I was afraid that I would, you know, get sent home. And so, um, and to, to make clear, like I never did anything where I would be, uh, first and foremost, I, I never, ever wanted to be a liability. So it's not like I was treating significant things on myself, but like, you know, pulling frag out of my legs or some of that stuff you know, you do whatever you can to, to stay there because those are your guys. You're willing to do everything and anything to stay there. You know, again, you, you've done that stuff. So, um, you just, that's your family, you know? And so, um, you know, being able to, to tear apart your, your lessons learned, thankfully, I, I never had anything egregious where I was like, man, I totally failed that guy. Um, you know, but there are times where, like say um, you put a trach tube in a guy, and, and but then you got to move because people are still trying to eliminate you as well, you know. And, and you're moving hastily with a guy that's significantly injured, and things can get ripped out. And you know you got to then stop behind, you know, true cover, not just concealment, but actual hard cover that can protect you, and redo everything before you move again. I mean, it's just like on and on and on. So in those moments, you think like man, was there a different way I could have secured that thing? Mm. So those branches didn't rip it out or, or this or that or whatever, you know? And so, um, you know, I, thankfully I never had anything really, um, where I was like, man, I, I totally treated pooch, but other medics have, and, and we're all human. That's fair. And, and to your point, what we all did was shared those lessons learned. So I would have a few PJs assigned to me, to, you know, to help augment as well as another, uh, you know, corner or two. And so we would all talk internally. Um, we would do like study sessions you know, once a week. We would get together and, and, you know, we would, if we didn't have any battlefield things that we wanted to talk about, we would say like, hey, today let's, um, let's refresh our memory on um, analgesics or, you know, how to anesthetize somebody to do X, Y, or Z or how to intubate them or whatever. We just were always trying to sharpen our skills. And then collectively in the organization of soft medicine, you report back to the command, obviously, and, and whoever it is you're reporting to downrange to share any after actions. And then those get disseminated throughout, you know, SOCOM. So, um, and then obviously we have the, the, the special operations medical conference and guys share lessons learned there or, or new therapies or treatments or protocols or whatever. So there is a lot of, just like on the, on the SEAL side of things, there's a lot of, Hey, we need to make sure everybody's aware of this. Or, or sometimes we would have um, equipment failures, you know, like we would get some new device that failed or a needle would break or this, um, you know, chest tube would, would fail because the, this plastic didn't work in super cold areas or whatever it might be. So you just try to share any lessons learned with, with equipment and, and, you know, stuff that you have that, that isn't working right to then replace it, but then also make sure everybody else has the same information. Yeah. And then when you lost somebody overseas. Um, what, how did you deal with it then? And then how do you deal with it today? Uh, and do you think that, uh, you dealt with it in the most healthy way possible then and today? Um, or, uh, or how, did, how did you deal with that for it's in, and I asked that for, uh, for other people that are out there that, um, 
might not necessarily be dealing with some of the trauma of the battlefield in the most most healthy way. Maybe they, uh, you know, they're an E5, did one deployment, were part of something horrific, and now they're trying to move on with their lives. Or maybe they're not even in the military and they dealt with a, a car crash or a death of a loved one or something like that. So, um, what was what was that like at the time? And then how how is uh, what is that like dealing with it today? Man, great question. Um, it's tough, right? Uh, the, the first time, so first time somebody, I, I wasn't even there, uh, but a, a buddy, a really, really, really close friend, um, like my twin brother, he was overseas, got injured, and I was back at command and like, hey, um, we need you to, to go, uh, you know, knock on the door. And because he wasn't deceased, he was just injured. I could go in civvies mm. and hopefully not scare the hell out of this woman that was, you know, nine months or eight months pregnant at the time, like she was ready to, to deliver. And so, you know, I go with another one of his buddies. We knock on the door. She, as soon as she opened the door, like face went white. She started falling backward. And I like, you know, get through the, the, the glass porch door as quickly as possible. And like, Hey, you're okay. He's fine. He's fine. And, and you go through that thing. And so that was the first taste of like, we're not unbreakable, you know? Mm -hmm. And even though I wasn't there, I was just like, I, I couldn't wait for my friend to get home and, and, you know, hug him and, and help him and whatever. Being overseas, um, you know, losing guys, oh, dude, it, I, I don't think, and again, um, what the families go through is millions of times worse than, than I think anything I've ever experienced, but it is gut-wrenching you know you um obviously you're hurting um and then you're with your your group of guys that are they're hurting you know and some more than others there's guys where it's like man that was my swim buddy and buds and like our families grew up together and you know it's like you you have part of your heart ripped out you know it's um someone that you truly truly love and care about um, you know, obviously we, we'd lost a few guys through the years, like onesies and twosies. Um, the, the first one that really floored me was when we lost Adam, um, uh, Adam Brown, who, uh, I know, you knew, uh, amazing, amazing guy. Uh, you know, as a support guy, we don't always get treated the best, but he, he was one of those guys where, you know, he treated me like an equal and, and shared his knowledge and, um, you know, if I ever wanted to train or, I mean, he was always like, yo, I got you, bro. Let's go. Uh, just an amazing, amazing guy. And, and to know like how devoted he was to, to his spirituality and, and his family, his kids, um, just absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking to, to go through those. And again, it just, it's got a pale in comparison to what the families go through. Um, and then obviously for me, uh, something I still struggle with today was extortion um, that was my, my, you know, my family, uh, my troop. Right. And I spent more time with those guys over the course of five years. And I did my own wife and kids. And, um, right before that deployment, I got selected to go um, to another squadron at, at the command. And, um, you know, I, I, I still remember, you know, hugging them and, and see you guys soon and, and, and the whole deal. And it was a, I think it was a Friday night. Um, I was shaping surfboards on the side just for fun, you know, something I love to do. And I was at my shaping bay, uh, at a buddy's house and, um, the phone rings and it's, it's my buddy who I knew who's on the ops rotation who stays back and it helps like, you know, logistics. So he had just had a, a kid. So they decided to keep him back and, 
And, you know, I see him calling me uh, on a Friday night at, you know, I think it was like nine o'clock or something. And, and I was like, and I was like, Hey brother, who is it? You know? And he's like, I can't tell you over the phone. I need you to come in. I was like, and I just had a beer and I was like, dude, I just had a beer and you know, maybe another one's going to be, you know, following after this news is like, I need you to come in. I need your help. And I was like, okay, who is it? And he was like, it's all of them. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's all of them. I need you to come in. And then he hung up. So I was just like, what the hell is he talking? You know, and sure enough, I, I drive into work and, and it was all of them, you know, and uh, that's, you know, again, I can't imagine uh, what those families um, struggle with. I, I nothing but admiration for You want to talk about some warriors, those women and the way that they pulled their kids together and, and each other and, and got through that. Oh my God. Amazing. Uh, more brave than, than anything I've seen on the battlefield. And it taught me so much about strength and, and uh, you know, moving forward in life, if you will. But man, that's tough when, you know, like for me, I lost my whole social circle. <laughs> Everybody I spent time with was, was gone. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think you ever truly get over something like that. Um, I, I, and I know, you know, lots of guys struggle, right? Um, there are, there's so many amazing things out there to help. However, access is not as easy as it should be. And then obviously we know that with the VA and, and the military healthcare system, one, it's overwhelmed and, and, you know, broken, especially on the VA side of things, as, as far as efficacy and, and taking care of people in a timely manner. Um, and then on the military side, they're focused with active duty uh, men and women and their families, understandably, right? So a lot of guys get left in this lurch where they, where they begin to feel hopeless because they're not getting the therapy they want. And I think one of the ills of SOF is that we are taught to like mentally bear so much. So, you know, most people, if they twist their ankle or, you know, hurt their arm, they're like, ouch, this hurts. I'm going to the doctor. Typically <laughs> we don't do that. We're like, eh, you know, whatever. And, and we end up stacking so many injuries, both mental and physical that eventually we get to the place where your mind breaks, you know, not your body, your mind is, is reached its limit. And for those of us that come from this world, that's, that's a, can be a really deep hole. Right. And we, we know guys that, um, you know, unfortunately have taken their lives and, and, uh, I still, you know, I get the one thing I'll say to everybody that's out there that, that is going through a tough time is like, you are not alone. Most of the guys, like I've developed relationships over the past 20 plus years as being their sole health healthcare provider. Right. And so if they are feeling retired and even still active duty guys, we'll, we'll call like, yeah, okay, for, I need to talk, man. Um, you know, I'm getting ready to, I don't think I have any choice left. Like I'm hurting my family more by staying here than if I just kill myself or whatever. And, and one, that's absolutely not true. The world is a better place with you in it. Uh, your family needs you. Um, but obviously you got to get to a place where you can feel good and you can love yourself um, and reconcile with the things that you struggle with. So it's all a work. And just like it was to get through the training and end up at the job that we had, or, you know, if you're out there struggling that you had, like you have to apply that same tenacity to your wellness and, and your mental well-being. You know, you have to put in the work every day. And there are going to be days where it's tough and it's hard. And um, I've I've been to that darkness. I, I know how how scary and alone you feel. Even like I'm blessed, man. I, my wife and kids um, are amazing. I, I do really well by I'm not a screamer. I've never laid a hand. I'm I hate drinking. Like 
but I'm a quiet sufferer. Right. And, and, um, and you've known me for a number of years. Like I, I feel like I take on other people's pain when they come to me. And so I'll lay awake at night wondering like, okay, I need to introduce them to this person and that person. And, you know, like just do everything I can to help them because I know how bad those things hurt the physical and, and emotional um, wounds. So, you know, long, short, it's, it's a work in progress for all of us, I think. And some guys are great at, at like, you know, consuming that experience for what it was and, and moving on and it, and it doesn't, you know, bother them, if you will. I'd say what, what, what troubles me these days is not so much the experiences I went through, but it's those calls and it's staying up worrying about people. And, um, you know, so anyway, long, short, it just, it takes daily, um, I think an application or an intent every day to, to do the things that you need to do to, to get the care you need to, even if it feels like it's going to take forever. Um, you know, you just, you just got to keep pushing forward, but those bills will come due one day. And, you know, I think as a community, we've done a lot better at being more open with each other and reaching out to each other. Whereas in the early days of, of our time, you know, you didn't say anything like if <laughs> you didn't say if you were, your leg was broken or if your feelings were hurt, you didn't, you, know, you didn't talk about any of that stuff. You just sucked it up, you know, and you, you every old frogman adage out there, like, you know, suck it up buttercup or embrace the suck or whatever it might be, you know, like only easy day was yesterday. Like get back out there and just like, okay, you know, that's, that's what it is. But I think now the community is much wiser to, um, ensure that in the after actions or post deployments, like guys have an opportunity to, to speak and, and communicate with each other, um, you know, to share difficulties because no one else knows what we're going through, but us. Right. So. Man, I mean, I mean, I know you, you take a lot on yourself of, uh, you know, at all the people you try to try to help a little bit of that, you know, ends up being a, a part of you moving, moving forward and you help a ton of people. I mean, I mean I'll never know. No one will ever know exactly how many people you you've saved, not just on the battlefield, but after in this uh, uh, post military chapter in life, and then while you were still in, and those all those those years where you were helping guys on the side deal with uh, all things physically and psychologically, like it doesn't it doesn't make you reevaluate your life choices and get out. Like you double down and you stay there for a lot longer, um, and you could have taken an off ramp at any time along there to either go to like a shore duty, go to a training command, go do something, take a, take a break. And, uh, and you don't do that. You keep, uh, you keep doing, doing the job. Um, and, uh, do you think that staying focused, uh, like helped you work through, uh, extortion one seven and all the other things that you'd seen up to that point, or was it a postponement, uh, of like, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with this, this later. Now's not the time. I still got to work. There's still work to do out there. Um, which I think most guys, probably, probably do. Yeah. You know, seeing the, the commitment to not only the families, but what was happening downrange, uh, speaking about extortion specifically, obviously myself and every other guy that used to be with gold that was back at the command was like, yo, send me. Cause they, they were, you know, the sh deployment's not over. They were going to reconstitute a troop over there. Um, and get other guys. And so ultimately they ended up pulling from the other squadrons, guys volunteered to go over there mm -hmm. and, and not only do the job, but, but clean up and, and pack up guys stuff and, you know, do everything they could to, to, uh, you know, bring everybody home. And so, you know, if that's not a testament to how strong our bonds are between each other, I don't know what is. And, and, you know, I would say 
both unfortunately and fortunately enough for me, the experience that followed shortly thereafter was I got uh, assigned as a Keiko to one of the families. And so um, at the time, I I was assigned to another family and I, I won't say them, but, uh, you know, it was really, really close uh, with him. And I just, I couldn't even, I couldn't even bring myself to, to look at his wife or, or kids in the eyes. So it's like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, give me a new guy that, that I don't really know. And, um, you know, I, I will do what I can, but, you know, being assigned to that, that family and, you know, we're talking about a, a, a young woman with, uh, two, uh, you know, babies, uh, oh man, uh, I, I will, I don't think a movie could ever do it justice. And we've all seen those, you know, scenes in the movies, but like, I will never forget the sounds from that day, the crying, the wailing, the, you know, like the whole family melting and, you know, me and two other dudes are standing there in our dress blues. And, and then it's like, you got to get right to business because, Hey, we got to do paperwork. We got to do all this stuff. Cause I want to get this money to you. I want to get his affairs settled. Like, you know, it, it was just a, a surreal experience. And all the while that that is happening, I'm hurting because everybody I know is gone, you know? And so, um, there was a part of me selfishly that was like, I can't be here right now. Like I'm, I'm going to fall apart because this is just insane. What has just happened? However, comma, this woman needs me. And so I poured my focus into protecting her vociferously. Like if anybody, um, you know, if I perceived a threat to her, <laughs> you know, like whether it was news cameras, family members, whatever, like she was my charge, you know, and those kids were my responsibility. I owed that to that, even though I only knew him for a short time, like I owed it to him and I owed it to his family. So it, it I mean, it, it allowed me like literally during that entire time, aside from after going home that first night that my buddy told me and like melting, I, I, I didn't cry. I was just like in shock. This cannot be real. Um, but after, um, you know, going and we do the notification and, you know, I'm there the whole day, the other two guys, they leave. So I'm, I'm alone with this family. And I stepped outside for a minute to make the call just to let people know that, you know, things were going on, on track. And of course, by this time, there's like, there's neighbors everywhere and there's news cameras that want to come. And, you know, so I'm a bouncer in the cul-de-sac, like, you know, I'll save my language for the audience, but you know, like I see this news truck and I was like, you guys better get the, mm -hmm. <laughs> like beat it. You're not welcome. Um, and, and I, you know, I went and sat in the car, uh, and I was just like, I just cried, man, for like five minutes. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself time to, to like, have my own little pity party and feel bad for myself and, and try to like, just let's like off gas some of yeah. this emotion that's held inside of me. And then I got to get my game together and, and go, you know, provide support and whatever this, this young woman yeah. needs. And so that was really the only time where I was like, man, my friends are gone. Um, you know, and then obviously I'm, I'm like crying for this, just seeing the anguish that she just went through and, and her parents like, Oh my God, it was mm -hmm. gutting. Uh, but in that experience, again, I learned so much, just like I said about the wives and seeing the strength that these women had. And, and, you know, again, I won't put any names out there, but there, there are definitely some of those women that, that rose to the occasion, um, and really kept everybody moving forward in the right direction in honor of their men, you know, it's like Spartan warrior stuff, you know, it was just, 
And, and I learned so much about their perspective as, as, you know, like we joke at the command pink squadron and the wives and all that, but, you know, I learned about um, some of the things that they struggled with. You know, I'd never, ever really sat down with Katie and said, Hey, how, you know, is my job affecting you? I never did that. Shame on me because how could it not, especially when I was doing some of the, 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 you know, things where I didn't have as much contact with her. I can only imagine what it must be like sitting at home, especially with kids. And you're like, she, our wives are everything. Uh, you know, they are the wife or the mom, the dad, the mechanic, the veterinarian, the pediatrician, they pay the bills. I mean, they run everything so we can go do what we want to do. And, um, you know, just hearing the perspective of a lot of the wives, how they feel they get treated. And, and then obviously in an experience like this, how they feel like they get excluded and, you know, they, they feel that they, um, you know, they get looked at a different way now, not as part of the family still, but you know, like, Oh, you were, it's like, you want to say naturally, like, I am so, so every time I, I see some of those women, I'm like, I just want to hug them and say, I'm so sorry that he's gone or whatever. But you know, you obviously they're moving on. Um, they're trying to make sure they're strong for their kids. And, and so, you know, I would say to any of the guys out there listening, if there's some wives of your teammates that are no longer with us, like treat them like they're still part of the family and not this injured, you know, little duckling, like they're strong, amazing women and they still need us, you know? So. Amazing. And then when did you decide to get off this speeding train and what, uh, what <laughs> I mean, you don't hop right off. I mean, you stay in it. And, uh, what, what makes you, is there a certain point where you're like, Hmm, you can point to this was the signal to get out or my family needed me or, Hey, I, uh, my body's breaking down here. I've been doing this for quite some time. I might need to, might need to stretch and eat right and, uh, and, uh, get healthier. Like what was that thing that, uh, that made you decide to, it was time to turn, turn the page and, uh, and move on. Yeah, mine was my physically, um, you know, eventually I got to the point where, like I said earlier, I never wanted to be a liability mm -hmm. to my guys. You know, I'm there to, to protect and, and care for them, not the other way around. And um, I had a significant spinal injury uh, for many years before that I ended up rehabbing from as quickly as I possibly could and then ended up deploying a bunch more, injured my spine again. And then that second mm -hmm. one was the one that was like, you know, God was like, yo, dude, you didn't get the message the first time. Like, <laughs> listen, <laughs> time up. out. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's time to stop, dude. So, uh, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was eventually, you know, my, my doc, who's someone I'd come up with, he was a junior doc, uh, when I was at SDV and then ultimately became the command surgeon. And, you know, we were just super, super close. Mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, he was like, Hey, look, man, I, I, you will stay on this ride until, until you kill yourself. Like, you can't do this anymore. You, you, we gotta, we gotta fix your body. We gotta, we gotta get you the care you need. And, um, had another guy who was a, a, a medically retired ranger at the command who, uh, was our SOCOM care coalition rep at the command. And between him and the doc, they, you know, they saved my life, man. Honestly, like they, they just forced me to swallow the hard pill. Like you are no longer fit to do this, this work. That's okay. Um, now it's time to, to do the things you need to do to, to be able to be around for the long game with your, your wife and kids. And so, you know, that was a, that was a tough, tough pill to swallow. I, I had literally just come back from a, a deployment, um, overseas and undeclared, uh, theater of, of operations. And, you know, I was like, man, now I'm doing this really cool stuff. And, you know, I, I don't want to stop. Um, but 
you know, I, you know, like we all have our goals, right? I wanted to make Master Chief and uh, I was so close, but, you know, it wasn't in the cards. So uh, here we are. I got off the flaming roller coaster, not by choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And, uh, but you stayed, I mean, you stayed connected. Maybe people don't know this about you. You stayed, you didn't just turn the page. Um, you stayed connected to to the guys, not just at your command, but at other other commands um, and helped them, particularly not just with the physical stuff like, hey, doc, what do I do? I did this. I still want to deploy. Can you sew me up or whatever it is, um, like the the, the the mental side of the house. You've helped so many guys mm-hmm. in this uh, post-military chapter in life when you could have just focused on what you're going to do next. And what what is that? And I want to talk to you about that, too, about that transition, because yeah, I'm no, always I- like, what is he doing? Wait, what? what is this now? I didn't hear about this. What is this thing you're doing? Um, which is, which I love following your, your journey. There's so many great things, uh, ahead for you on the horizon. Um, but you stayed connected to those commands and we talked in December and you don't, don't, you don't have to share the numbers cause I don't know if they're, they're, they're public. Um, but about how many guys have taken their, their own lives in the military and particularly in, in special operations and, you know, drilling down even more into the, these top tier, tier units. Um, but it was astounding that number that you, that you shared with me. Um, and, uh, I mean, for those, for those guys, and they, man, 20 years at war, will will do a couple of things to you, especially when you're doing the things that, uh, that, that you did. Um, and, uh, where do you point guys when they, when they call you, like yeah. for people that are out um, there that are, maybe they're doing well, or maybe it looks like they're doing well. And some, a friend reaches out who's struggling and okay, now we're back. Now we're back in it. Um, and you're having this one-on-one conversation, or maybe it's a text, or maybe it's a friend of a friend that says, Hey, so-and-so is not doing well. I don't know what to do. Where do you, where do you point them? What do you, what do you, each situation being a little bit different, obviously, or maybe a lot different. Um, but where do you, where do you point those guys or their family members who are reaching out or their friends that are reaching out saying, Hey, so-and-so needs some help right now. And I don't know what to do. And they know that you're that guy who cares so deeply, uh, while you're in and on the outside now, where do you, where do you point people? Yeah. I'd say if, if you're at that spot where, um, you know, you've, you've reached the, the bottom of the pit, so to speak, and, and it's just all you see is darkness. Uh, what I would say to you, uh, and what I say to my my brothers and sisters that that reach out when they're struggling is that, um, you know, whatever you believe in, uh, God, the universe, uh, I think it's all the same thing, right? Like this this higher power out there. What I've seen in life spiritually is that on the always on the on the other side of the darkest dark is the brightest bright. Like you just got to hang in there. And it's so it's easier said than done. Like I said earlier, it takes constant daily effort to get to a place of, of wellness. And dude, I, I struggle every day with that. There's times where, um, you know, the frustrations of, uh, like right now, uh, in a, in a capital raise for one of the projects that, that I'm so passionate about, you know, I think it's, it's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. But you know, investors, they, they might not think that. So you, you get really frustrated and, and, um, you know, with, with the lack of, for me, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being forced to operate at a level so far below my potential mm-hmm. because I'm not capitally capable of doing the things I want to do the way I want to mm-hmm. do them. Right. And so you're like, that's my hardship now, along with like the physical stuff. So there's plenty of days where, where, you know, I'm angry, I'm pissed. Like I joke with, with, with friends, like, man, I miss war, <laughs> you know? Um, but you just gotta, just like you did in your training, you just gotta show up every day. And so typically when guys reach out, um, first, I just want to make sure that they're not a danger to themselves or, or someone else. Like if I get those calls, um, I drop everything and I am there. And again, I, I never got to the spot where I was like, 
proactively planning my my demise, right? But I certainly have experienced enough pain, uh, physical pain, uh, where I've laid down to try to sleep and I'm like, God, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I'm cool with that. Like this hurts. Um, but for those, but even if you get to that spot, you're, you're, you're close, right? Like that's, you, you should reach out, um, and, and talk to your buddies and not most of us do it flippantly. Mm. Like you'll, and I'm sure you've experienced it before too, but you'll get these, these cries for help that are like, Hey man, how you doing? The, the flippant answers, Oh man, I'm good. How about you? Uh, I, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Like, mm. you know, I'm having some bad days and okay, cool, man. You know, maybe I'll see you around town. And like, we just breeze past it. But whenever those things come up in, in conversation, I would say one to anyone that's listening, like dig in a little bit, make sure your buddy, your friend, your family member, whoever is truly okay. Um, you can't be afraid to ask harder, uncomfortable questions because the alternative is regretting never asking those hard, uncomfortable questions down the road tragic, you know, if, if it takes that tragic turn. So um, don't be afraid to have conversations that, that may be uncomfortable. Uh, and if someone does say that, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm not having fun anymore. I, I want off this ride and, and I think I'm going to end my life. One, obviously there's, there's uh, you know, you can go straight to any emergency room uh, and get checked in and go down the mental health pathway. But then there's also just a number of, of um, suicide hotlines, um, you know, jump in your phone and Google. There, there are a number of them, county specific, state specific, nationally specific, veteran specific, you name it, there's a group out there. And at least you can get on the phone to talk to somebody. Because what I notice uh, that most people struggle with is they get to the position of, of true despair where they're considering taking their life and even though they might have a home with a wife and kids or, or a close group of friends or teammates, uh, you know, they, they feel alone because one, we're creatures of, of always moving forward. And, you know, like I'm trained where <laughs> if my arms and legs are gone and all I got left to do is roll towards the bad guy, like that's what I'm going to do. Right. And so we were always try to push forward through those tough things and, and we don't ever want to bog other people down with the things that are bothering us. Right. Because I know, like, I don't want to complain to my buddy that my back is hurting and my legs are hurting because I know he's hurting mm -hmm. too, you know, so just keep yourself. And with the sensitivities around mental health, it gets even more, um, you know, touchy, mm -hmm. if you will, to have those conversations because one, if you're active, you don't know anyone thinking like, I'm going to lose my job now. If I say that I'm having, you know, concerns about my well-being. When in hindsight or looking from a much bigger picture, you know, the job is great. I'm, I'm the last one to, to tell you um, to, to, you know, throw your career away. But, you know, ultimately your health and well-being and, and your family and your presence in this world is, is far more important than any of that other stuff. Like, and if you're not good, you're not going to do that job to the best of your ability anyway. So if you truly care about that job and your teammates, um, then you got to say something. And then obviously for the retired guys, I know it's tough, man, that, you know, getting healthcare in, in a, in a expedient manner to address real significant pain is tough. And, and you get to those spots where you feel horrible and alone. Um, you know, you start walking around, like you're the dark cloud in your house. I, I know of, of friends and, and I, myself, like there's times where I've been hurting physically so bad that ultimately like mentally you start suffering as well because you're like how can all this pain how can this be 
possible to, to hurt like this and not have everyone take me seriously. You get to a point where even your own family doesn't know how to help you. So they avoid you. And so um, if you are feeling alone, like call a hotline, call a friend, reach out to somebody and don't dance around the bush. Like tell them straight up, I am having a tough time. I'm struggling. Can I meet you for coffee, breakfast, whatever? And, and ultimately what you want to find are, are partners that will keep you accountable, right? Like buddies that aren't going to be you know, I have friends like, you know, I'll call guys after they've, you know, they've taken care of themselves and they've done the right things or like, you know, we are the the worst jokesters there are. Like we're blunt. Other people will hear our comedy and be like, oh my God, what is the yeah. matter with you people? You know, but I'll call guys and, you know, joking around, but it's straight to the point. Like, hey man, just calling to make sure like you stay away from the booze. You're not screwing around. Or you're like, blah, blah, blah. You know, make sure mentally they're good and just you got to reach out. You got to let people know you're hurting. Then you got to do the things you need to do every day to ensure that you're taking care of yourself. Because if you're not good, you're not good for anybody. You got to take care of yourself and then have people around you that will keep you accountable. Yeah, man. And did you have a plan when you were getting out? Like, did you take any time to come up with a plan? And if you did, is that plan, mm -hmm. are you still on that path? Because you've done so much stuff over the last couple of years. It's hard for me to keep track. Uh, what are you, uh, like, what are you up to now? Or what did you, what did you, what was your plan getting out? Like, what were you going to step into? And, uh, yeah. and what have you moved on to from there? So uh, when I was uh, towards the tail end of my career and going through the medical retirement process, you know, for me, one of the things I had been involved in for, for a number of years before that was, was on the charitable mm -hmm. side, um, you know, steering people that I knew that could potentially be donors to support these, um, these things or, or just really benevolent people that wanted to, to give back or wanted to help guys and, and their families that were struggling. And so the, the charitable side of things really interested me. And then aside from my primary role of, of being the medic for, for the guys and gals I supported, um, I was also uh, lucky enough to to have some really fun side jobs. Like I was the avalanche guy, so I got to ski a bunch, and I was the the high water rescue guy, so I got to learn how to drive jet skis and and surf in Hawaii and all that great great stuff. The other thing that I was really um, fortunate enough to be a part of was a lot of the human performance and canine performance, a lot of the research that that SOCOM was doing that the command had any purview in, and so I knew that I because of a lot of the technologies that I was seeing that were on the bleeding edge of, of human performance or just wellness, general wellness or recovery. Um, and the fact that there's such a lack of those things on the outside. And obviously to be fair, there are plenty of amazing centers all over the place, but they're all just missing a couple pieces. And so I was like, man, I, I want to build a ranch, um, you know, Idaho, Montana, somewhere just big and beautiful and wild where guys can hunt and fish and archery and do those things that are good for them, but also build a place that had all the components that I thought would truly be beneficial to, to these men and women and their families healing. And then ultimately get to a place where, you know, aside from military, we're also taking care of, of law enforcement uh, folks. And, you know, so like, I just, I, I want to continue to serve. I, I just, it's in my DNA. Obviously, what I want to do is is a bit beyond what I'm capable of financially. So I was like, okay, before I could build that that place and ultimately have centers around the, the country, um, I need to understand um, you know how to raise money, how these businesses get capitalized, and and the whole that side of it. And so obviously, 
you know, Andrew was was gracious enough, um, your, your good buddy, to um, give me a purview into the world of investment banking and, and just listen and learn and, and watch their meetings and be part of them and just absorb information. And, um, you know, eventually I knew, okay, there's other things I want to do to get to that point where I can build that ranch. Um, I want to have a line of uh, health and wellness and human performance products that are anchored in clinical work and, and have a robust scientific advantage to the delivering uh, whatever nutrients or, or molecules I, I want to to better people's lives. And so that was the first uh, thing that Seven Sages Health, uh, which is the, the company I'm trying to do the, the next race for right now. And then um, because my first significant injury was on one of our death boats, <laughs> uh, I got smashed between a, a HSAC and a, and a Navy oh. ship that we were assaulting for training. Oh. And that was the first time on I On a ladder? Like a swell went up and got you? So while well, we were, we, we had finished the, the hit on the ship. And, and so they uh, put down like this big, massive, like net ladder down one side. And then we still had a caving ladder attached to the leeward side. And so um, I was with my guys on that side. And so I was bottom man on the ladder and, and it was at night and like out of a bad movie, it's, it's, <laughs> it's raining sideways and the seas are horrendous. And I'm like, I can hear the flight of the Valkyries in my head. And, you know, it's like, dun, 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 dun. and I'm just like, Oh man, what are we doing? So anyway, I'm bottom guy on the ladder and, and the guys in the H sack or, or like our speedboat, um, when they rise to like the highest point, they'll put an IR light on, on the, like, don't go below this point on the ladder, essentially, because bad things happen <laughs> past it, right? Uh, you'll be between two boats. And so I'm, I'm like a couple rungs above the ladder. And it was actually, um, Adam Brown was above me. And, and I'm looking for the boat. And I saw it come in under me. And then I just see this big explosion of water. And I thought it got rolled under the ship. Um, but it had squirted out off this big convergence of, of wave wow. that hit. And so um, I was like, oh crap, the boat's gone. And then above me, he yells like, watch your legs, you know? And so I look out to the side and it's with nods. And so it's a lot, everything's like kind of whited out because of all the rain. And, and now the Navy ship has turned on all the lights. So it's hard to see, but I see like the H sack coming at me. And so I just dropped off. I just grabbed my gun and dropped off the ladder thinking like I got a better chance with the blendy thing oh. in the back of this big boat than being between these two things. Um, and unfortunately I landed in like a seated position in the back of the H sack and the, and the H sack also has like these bolsters that we, we all mm. lean against. You're standing in the back of that thing. And, um, I had my right arm had hit that thing when I went into the boat and I was like, I just broke my arm, you know, that's what I, and then my legs were just like on fire. So I knew because I had landed in a seated way, um, that I had done something, but it was kind of funny. I land in the boat seated, the boat hits the Navy ship. I hit the Navy ship with my head. Oh. And then like, as we go up, you know, we scooped five oh. more dudes off the ladder and, and we're laying there in a pile in the back of this boat. And we had, we had two CAG guys with us because we were doing a bath and a half uh -huh. or a helicopter and a boat assault. And so these two Delta guys were like, well, I've never been on a boat. Like I'll come on that speedboat <laughs> thing with you guys. And so I'm like face to face with this guy. He's like, you're the doc, right? And, and you know, like we're laughing and giggling like kids, like we're alive. And I was like, yeah, man. And he goes, I think I broke my arm. I was like, man, I'll check you when everybody gets oh. up. And so like, we're, we're unassing ourselves. And, and I went to stand up and I just flopped oh. over and I was like, holy crap, I'm paralyzed. 
And then as the medic, like I'm going through, um, you know, what are the things? So first off, I'm like, guys, drag me to the back corner of the boat because there's more guys on the ladder. We need to get more guys off. And so while that was happening, I started to get some feeling back in my right leg and my left leg was just haywire. So I'm like, okay, I probably either have some type of burst fracture or I've herniated a bunch of discs and, and mm. I either have X, Y, or Z. And then ultimately by the time we got to shore, um, I was like, I need to get to a hospital right now. I, I, I'm pretty sure I have caught Aquinas syndrome because uh, I could feel my bladder was distending oh. and, all, and I couldn't like, could not go to the bathroom. So I was like, get me to surgery. So, so that was the, the, the first one. But anyway, um, because of that experience, it was always in the back of my mind, um, just in riding on those boats. And I know you've tasted that pleasure too. It, it is the most violent freight train you've ever been on. Credit to the guys, the SWIC guys that drive those boats are incredible uh, maritime mm -hmm. operators. I mean, they're unbelievable. Uh, but with, with uh, you know, these big rigid boats and, and rough seas and, and, you know, guys like you in charge always saying like, hey, it's horrible weather. It's a great time to train, you know, like <laughs> training weather. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's training weather because this is when bad guys hunker down. Everybody hunkers down. So we're going to, we're going to own this bad weather time and, and go out there and train. And so I was just always like, man, these boats are horrible. There's so many of my buddies that are, you know, like we joke, they're an inch shorter and, yeah. and, you know, sweet guys have like so many orthopedic injuries, especially to their lower limbs and, and pelvis. And so I was like, man, there's, and their spine there's got to be a better boat. And so that's the other company I'm part of that's foil cat. And that's a, a foil assisted power catamaran. And, um, you know, two projects I'm, I'm really passionate about that hopefully will get me to, uh, the ability to build that ranch. That is there. awesome. Have you built those boats yet? I was looking at them, uh, earlier. Yeah. So there's a couple of them out there or how's that, how, what's that look like right now? Yeah. So we had a, a 24 foot boat that, uh, my, uh, buddy and co-founder Todd, developed a while back with a company called Melvin and Morelli, who you may have heard through the America's cup scene in, in your time with, with Larry and Jimmy and all those guys that they are uh, one of the firms that design a lot of those foiling uh, boats. And so uh, we went to them and, or Todd went to them uh, with, with seeing if we could put a foil in a boat. And, and so he had, you know, like you mentioned the protector and um, those, you know, those aren't far behind our H sacks. They ride horribly. Mm -hmm. Sorry, protector. Um, you know, cool boats, but just, you know, like most boats, they just, they smash the heck out of the folks that are on there and they're not that great fuel wise. And so we had been experimenting with other boats and Todd had gone on a, a powered catamaran, um, you know, an offshore fishing boat and the ride was way better with the cat. So that's what mm. got us going down that pathway of a foil assisted cat, which Melvin and Morelli was, was considering and working on at the time as well. So we partnered with them. Uh, designed a, you know, essentially an offshore racing catamaran, a step hull boat, super fast on its own, and then put a foil in there to further enhance the ride. And so now we get really amazing fuel efficiency, but most importantly to me, obviously for, for my spinal reasons, um, it rides like butter nice. through, uh, through the water, man. It's awesome. So we have that and then a, a bigger 35 foot boat. Um, and then I've been working obviously with, uh, some of the folks from our old world on, on seeing if we can tailor an application to, uh, military and law awesome. So now that you've been out for a few years now, um, what, well, I guess, what lessons have you learned and what do you pass on to guys that are about to get out that come to you and are like, Hey man, I'm about to get out. I want to do X, Y, or Z, or Hey, I'm getting out. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Uh, I guess I'll contract for a little bit or whatever. 
what, what advice do you pass along to guys that are transitioning? Um, and you know, usually this advice is good for people transitioning from anything in life. Doesn't have to be military special operations. It can be from, from anything. It can be from a, a, a job into a new job or from a, you know, from a death of a loved one or a divorce or any transition in life. But, uh, having now done this, and I know you've dabbled in a bunch of different things. I'm sure you have a ton of lessons learned that I hope you r- are writing down. Um, uh, but what do you pass on to the guys that are getting ready to get out and, uh, and start that next chapter in life? Uh, I would say slow your roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, for me, I knew that with with all of the physical damage that my body has has endured, and and you know, obviously the the mental, emotional things. You know, I, I'm blessed. I feel like I, I, I'm in such a um, you know a good place, albeit sometimes really tough. Uh, but I knew that I'm on. You know, I'm getting out at at, at you know, my mid forties and, and the things I want to accomplish, like eventually I, I, you know, I want to have more time with my wife and kids. Um, but my goal of building these places to care for people is supremely important because I think it's up to us to take care of ourselves because the government is just going to mess up <laughs> what <laughs> eventually anything, uh, you know, with loads of bureaucracy and red tape and it takes forever to, you know, on and on and on. Right. So I'm like, if there's a, we're going to do it, we got to do it ourselves. And so I thought, you know, building that ranch or, or these healing centers is, is critical, uh, to not only my well being, but to try to do everything I can to, to continue to serve others. I feel like without service in my life, um, it's not as rich. You know, I, I, Albeit sometimes it's annoying. I still got buddies that, you know, they'll call me at two in the morning, like, yo, dude, I just got in a scrap at a like a fight. Can you at a bar? Can you come stitch up my face? Like, okay, you know. So um, you know, I I need some avenue to to care and help for others. Um, because it's just in my it's in my bones, it's in my DNA. But um, but with that too, like I feel like I'm on a shortened timeline, you know. Here I am. I, I don't want to be working. Um, I, I'll probably work for forever on something like I got to be doing something, but not with as much time and bandwidth as was required right now. So I'm like, okay, I got like 10 to 15 years of really hardcore grind left in me. And, um, I'm going to do everything I can in this shortened timeline and try to learn from, from great people like, you know, Andrew and, and all the other folks that I've been blessed to meet, Kevin and Jimmy. I mean, like there's so many amazing guys that thanks to, uh, being asked to to come help on the first mm-hmm. event in support of your family, getting to meet a lot of those guys. So thanks to you. But uh, you know, I just I'm like I'm a sponge, right? I got two eyes and, and two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I'm just going to absorb as much information as possible and do my best to build um, you know com- companies that provide value to to people and shareholders. Now to answer your question, now that I've said all that, is like I just I came out of the gate hot. And, and, you know, like I didn't slow down at all. And I, I think in hindsight, I really should have, I should have, um, I definitely taken some time to lick some wounds and make sure I, I got all the surgeries I needed done because, you know, now here I am into, um, you know, this business stuff and, you know, I just don't have time to do those things right now. I will find the time, but right now, like lengthy recoveries are just, um, anathema to, to what I'm trying to accomplish and, and the time I'm trying to spend with my family. I mean, you know, right. So, um, 
I would say slow down and, and, and set some really strong left and right lateral mm-hmm. limits for yourself, some guideposts. And it was actually your advice. Um, you know, a few years back, uh, you know, we had spoken once and I was lamenting with like, man, how do you find the time? Like you are punching out books and you're doing all this amazing stuff. And you shared with me something I think was very poignant, which I, I think would benefit anyone listening in that you need to, if you can set those limits for yourself of what you're willing to do and won't do. And you had mentioned to me, cause I was talking about the time away from family, you know, you had said, Hey, listen, man, like if you're getting called to go on a work trip, that's two weeks, like put down on a piece of paper, this go, this checklist, like, I'm not going to take any job that has me away from my family for more than three days. I'm not going to say yes to anything that does X, Y, or Z. And after I made, like I wrote down those, those limits for myself, like what am I willing to do and not do? It became so much easier to say no to people because, you know, I'm a yes guy. Like if someone calls me and says, Hey, I need help. I'm there. Um, and, 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 you know, that is, not always a good thing because a lot of times my own personal needs or or like my mental well-being or physical well-being always will take a back seat if I feel that someone else because again I know what those things feel like and I don't know um you know obviously someone else's mental capacity to forge through and continue fighting through some of those things you know and knowing the guys that do call and reach out that are struggling you know if that guy is calling me and he's saying those things like I got to get there now, you know? And so I would say, take a step back, really assess what it is that you want to accomplish. What are the things that are out there that are important to you that, that you need to get done or that you want to, to achieve or get done. Um, and then balance those things with, with your family or your, your personal time, you know, surgeries you need adventures you want to go on. Like I think about Dinger and, you know, rowing across the Atlantic and biking across around Thailand and like, you know, I, yeah, I'm like, man, that's so amazing. You know, I could do that too. I just don't make the time for it. So, you know, spend the, I take that back. I don't know that I drove across the <laughs> That was pretty legit. Solo. Dinger yeah. is a wild Solo man. unsupported. Kudos Northern route. Like. Yes. <laughs> unsupported. Insane. Anyway, uh, if anyone doesn't know who Dave Dinger Bell is, go check his, uh, his, I think his thing is uh, NK to UK solo yep. or something like that. Check him out, man. Amazing guy. But anyway, you know, like take the time to really understand what it is that you want out of life in this new, this new chapter, because there's a whole bunch of things. Like I talked about earlier, those bills are going to come due. And for me, obviously there was the physical stuff, but then there was the, there was the new dynamic. I, I found out with the family where when I was at the command and I'm traveling, you know, 300 days a year for years and years on end, I was having to go to those places. Right. So it wasn't like it was ever held against me that I was gone all the time. Right. Kudos to my wife, because I know plenty of, of buddies and wives that, you know, everyone's different. Right. So, uh, but I know plenty of guys that struggled because their wives were like, dude, enough of this. Like I'm done, you know, and, and, and the tensions I saw there, I always felt bad for those guys and, and tried to empathize, but I just couldn't, cause I wasn't going through it. And lo and behold, <laughs> once I'm civilian, uh, Elias, you know, my wife was like, you know, one day she was like, yo dude, now you're choosing to be gone all the time. Like what is going on here? And so that was that what led to a conversation with you and, uh, you know, essentially stepping back and I really shut down a lot of the stuff, you know, like I was spending so much time out in LA. I was like, one, that place is not good for my soul. I just, ugh, I, mm. it's sad to see what, what's become in some of the places out there, but 
um, I just was, you know, I was spending more time out there focused on, on, on business stuff and trying to learn when I should have, you know, been home with my wife and kids. And so that's been great. And obviously with, with the, the COVID and, and all the silliness over the last few years, like I've been afforded even more time with my family. So I'm super blessed and thankful for that, but, you know, really step back and analyze what it is you want to do. Talk to other guys and, and gals that have walked in your shoes and ask them because Unfortunately, most people don't come back and share and say, hey, bro, just FYI, here's some of the things that you might experience when you get out. It's like we all learn uh, by fire, right? And so um, seek out guys that have, have left because what I would say, just my own experience coming from special operations, what I would imagine, you know, like, you know, thinking about, again about some of the guys we know, but that, that come out of the NFL or, you know, it's a real far fall from the top, if you will, where you feel like you've finally achieved the, the pinnacle, all your dreams, all these things you've worked so hard for. And now, not that I was special before, but now I'm, I'm just like every, you know, Joe Schmo walking on the street. And so when you, when you lose that mission, right. Or for me, when I, when I no longer had that purpose uh, to be part of that machine and go execute goals, wherever they were, it was tough, man. It, you know, like my head was spinning for quite a while because I'm like, man, what's my, what, what's my reason now, aside from, you know, being involved in all the charitable things and, and helping guys when they call. But you know, other than that, what am I, what am I doing a to always first and foremost is like, how am I bettering my, my kids and my wife's future? Um, you know, how can I impact the world positively so that my kids are left with a better place than I had? Um, that's, that's a mission that's always there inherent to any parent. Right. But for me personally, I was like, man, what am I, <laughs> what am I going to do now? And so I, again, I always knew I wanted to build that, that ranch or those, those centers where we can we really take care of folks. And there's some guys that are doing great things. And I think, man, I'm going to, you know, get these people together and these people. And so that's, I just refocused on what it was I want to do, but I would say, you know, take your time, talk to other people. And make sure you know what you're willing to do and, and won't do in this new phase of life. And it'll sort itself out. You've been through worse. Yeah, no, it's about that that mission and that uh, and that passion. And then, uh, you know, bridging, putting those two together, you know, uh, mating those two together. Yeah. And a really true believer that second novel is really about my character, James Reese, finding that next mission in life, that passion in life. And then, of course, once he finds it, you know, they pull him back in, of course, for the, for the good of the story and the narrative. But, um, but yeah. And and introducing his best friend in that book, yeah, who has a very similar story to somebody well, I know. Well, it's Savage Son. I mean, you're like the whole like, taking notes on all that stuff, and and you're you're woven right in there, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, that finding that passion, I think, guys, because it, it, the mission and the passion are both so clear in the military, particularly in uh, special operations. Um, you know your mission, and that's your passion, like both bam together. And then when you get out, you kind of, those things, maybe they're not the same, or maybe you don't know what they are. What are you passionate about? What's your mission in life as you make this transition, whether it's from the NFL or being an Olympic skier or whatever it, it might be, or the military. Um, and, and it can be anything really, but, uh, I was very lucky in that I, my passion was writing. I knew that that was clear and my mission was taking care of my family. So my job then becomes to put those together. Uh, how do I, how do I mate those two together moving forward? So, uh, I was very lucky that, uh, that that was very clear to me as I transitioned or well before I, I went, I transitioned out of the military, um, and then figuring out those things. Cause there were a lot of options out there. Um, and being able to figure out 
just because of how much time it takes to sift through with the family. So every time an option came in as we're getting out, uh, maybe it wasn't writing, maybe it was a backup, a contingency or an option. Well, rather than wasting three hours talking about it and thinking about, well, we have to move to city X or Y or whatever it might be. Hey, where would we go? Where would we live? Are the kids in school? Um, well, if you already have those things, those left and right limits, like for me, it was about freedom. Um, like I'd been focused on that mission for so long. Now it's time to explore a little bit of this, this freedom, uh, uh, moving on into this next chapter in life. So freedom being maintaining my own schedule and then financial. So if something hit the financial side of the house with many, which many options did, but didn't let me control my schedule instant. No, now I've wasted no other time thinking about where I have to move. Do I have to go get some qualification here that, okay, I guess I could do that. Already a no. I've already saved all that bandwidth and put that back into the novel, into that passion of writing. So I think that that really does help guys putting those left and, and right limits. Um, also helps to be clear on what you want to do next. Uh, but sometimes it takes yeah. a little while for, for people that don't don't uh, don't know that yet. And then where did this? Um, I'm so excited that you're exploring writing, particularly children's books, um, because. I get questions all the time about, hey, what should my kids be reading? Um, you know, you're, I put these reading lists out, but it's almost exclusively focused on an adult audience. And by that, I mean anybody, depending on reading level from like fifth grade onward um, into, into the way <laughs> as far as you want to go. Um, but I'm so glad that you're exploring writing something with, the, with lessons and imparting those to the, this next generation, uh, your children, my children. Um, and where did that passion come from and what stage are you in? Without yeah, giving so, away too many um, secrets. I don't want to give away your secrets here. Okay? No, 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 we can't. Uh, you know, there are some great books out there. Obviously, um, you know, parents are, are hungry for information and, and you can find tons of books. And obviously guys from our world have, have written, like you think of Jocko and, um, you know, plug for him, where the yeah. warrior kid, like those are some great books that get kids thinking and, and that allow the parents and kids to have really constructive conversations about what it is they're reading. And so, you know, along a similar vein, I, I always had these discussions. I'm a big fan. I know you just had Ryan on a uh, holiday. I'm a big fan of stoic philosophy. I always have been. And, and um, I think it gets a, a poor light shed on it when, when people misuse the term like, oh, you're so stoic. You know, people think that's like angry or mad or whatever, but it, it's a really balanced way, I feel, of approaching things and also being able to control your emotions, especially when you, you read the, the writings of Marcus Aurelius and, and the lessons there. And so I was always looking for ways to impart some of that stoicism in my children from a very young age. And part of that was with an ethos, right? You think ethos, pathos, logos, all those things, ethos being your character, who you are. And so I developed this little, you know, this ethos, almost a, a little, um, you know, poem, if you will, uh, that I would say, like, I would be holding this little baby and I would say it. And, and when they were old enough to talk and still to this day, my daughter is now 14, my son, 11, every night before bed, I hear their ethos and we pray, you know, and, and, um, and off the bed they go. And it's really awesome to hear when they share mindset lessons with their mm -hmm. friends or each other. Like we have this, you know, it's, it's more of a fun thing, but there's this rule in this house where you do not say can't. Um, and if you say the word can't, like I can't do that, um, it's an immediate physical uh, reprimand, right? So it's like, what do you want to do? You want squats? You want jumping jacks? You want push-ups? So I love when they call each other like, oh, you just said it. You just said it can't. And he's like, you just <laughs> you said it too. too. Why don't <laughs> say it? That's great. You know? so, 
Um, so it's great to hear them, uh, you know, understand those lessons. And now as they're older, it's allowed us to have really, really constructive conversations about what's going on in the world, what my opinion is based on facts. Like I'm a big believer, like base, <laughs> base your opinion on facts, um, uh, not emotion. Right. And, and so again, coming from a, a place of stoicism to see the kids do that, it's just helped guide them through what I can't imagine. I can't imagine what school must be like these days with some of the stuff that they come home, you know, talking about, or that a teacher has said, or some other kid. And it's almost like, and not to, to disparage, you know, there's some great teachers out there and not to disparage the, you know, public schools or private schools or any of that, but it's almost like kids today, they're being shaped into these angry little activists looking for something to say like, oh, that's offensive. That's this. And that like so many people are quick to point out something that's offending them or you know, whatever it might be. And there's validity to some things, right? Like for us as a population to advance and, and continue moving society forward in the right direction. But a lot of it is just, it's, it's people that take advantage of the benevolence and kindness of, and compassion of people. And then they're just arsonists, right? Whether it's like they're a racial arsonist or, you know, sexuality, right? Whatever it is that they're going to, um, you know, get on top. So anyway, with stoicism as, as a background and some of these lessons, it's just, it's been really amazing to see my kids handle these situations in, in really like grown up mm -hmm. ways. And not that most grown ups are too great these days, but, you know, to hear them have conversations with each other or come to me with things, um, you know, discuss, it all falls back to ethos. And so the pillars of the ethos I made, I won't say the little thing because I, I want some people to-, to Save it for the book, book. yeah. Save it for the book. I'm, I'm learning from the master here, Jack. But, um, you know, they, we say this little thing and each of the, the lines has a thing, whether it's a physical, each of them has a mental, any, like, for example, strong has both mental and physical, you know, traits there. And so um, in the book, there, there's one that's uh, been written already and, and illustrated. Um, I'm thankful that uh, my wife's uncle is an amazing illustrator. And I asked him, like, hey, man, I'd love for you to work on this project with me. And um, so we, we did like a kid's flip book with the ethos that I say with my kids. And then at the back, there's some topics that parents can maybe discuss with their, their young readers as they age a little bit. And then there's a in development right now, what I'm writing is like more of the young reader series where each of those traits of, of the ethos, like again, using strong and as, as an example is, is what is that? What, what does that mean? You know, and it's not about, um, you know, like I always say to the kids, like, you know, earn your title today, which is warrior. And, and it's not about being a fighter, right? It's like the old, um, what is a Japanese proverb where it's like, it's better to be a, a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, right? So aside from training my, my children to be physically strong, it's also mentally strong, right? So this whole series of books is just, I think it's important that kids now more than ever develop some mental armor because the world is, is a uncertain and, and crazy place. And there's so many, you know, they look at adults, uh, much like I looked at that recruiter in the beginning, like, yeah, sure, buddy, whatever you say, I'll go do. And so they got a question like, man, you know, if my own children are saying, you know, my teacher said this, or, you know, I was watching the TV and, you know, some politician or movie star or athlete came on and they said this, and that just doesn't make sense. And this and that, it's like, they're getting yeah. constantly bombarded with information more than we did. And you think about the reach of, of the phone, right? The cell phone, you have the entirety of human knowledge in your hand, which is awesome, but you also have 
an electronic leash that's always with you that you can always get bullied on. And, you know, like they can't escape things like we used to as, as kids. Like, you know, if I was dealing with bullies at school, I knew hey, when I get home, I'm getting on my dirt bike with my buddies and I'm going to disappear into the woods. No one's going to bother me. Now, you know, kids yeah. are, it's, um, it's like constant barrage. So I just felt it was important that it developed something to share some of the lessons that have served me in my life. And, you know, if it impacts one kid, then it's a win. That's man. awesome, man. I can't wait to, can't wait to see those on shelves. And, uh, someone was on this podcast over the summer and, uh, someone heard it. And, uh, now the book that we talked about is, uh, going to be published. I don't want to say who it was or, or what it oh, is man. because, you know, who knows along the way, what can, all, all sorts of things can yeah. happen, but, uh, I'm looking forward to get seeing that out there. And so looking forward to, to, to seeing yours. I think it's going to be a huge benefit to kids and their families. Um, and you spent so much time with me. I'm so sincerely appreciative. Uh, and as you'll see here, like usually I have a lot of notes written down and what I love having buddies on is because it makes it, zero notes. Uh, so, uh, so I love that. No, nice. zero prep for, uh, for this one. And I just always love talking to you. Always learn so much by uh, being in your presence. And I sincerely appreciate everything that you have done uh, for me personally, for my family, uh, and obviously for the entire community from, uh, from which we came, but, uh, looking forward, man, what gives you hope? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. I know you are, you are a patriot. Uh, you're a student of history. You've seen so much in the military and now you've made this transition to the private sector. Um, what, what gives you hope for, for the future? Because there's a lot going on, obviously, in our country and in, in the world. And we touched on it in the beginning, that appreciation of being able to live in a country where you can make your own decisions and live with those consequences of those decisions and forge your own path, learn from your mistakes, uh, rise back up if you've been knocked down. And really, I mean, this the it's the land of opportunity for a reason. It's called that for a reason. And it seems like uh, from within, we are taking some of those away now. Um, and so what gives you, when you think about where we are as a, as a nation uh, and where we're going as a nation, um, are you hopeful? This is a whole other podcast, bro. <laughs> Maybe we'll save that one for, the, uh, for when we have the books out. Uh, no. I'll say this. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the majority of people around the world, uh, just like we saw overseas, like there's plenty of folks in, in the places we were at that just want to have a good life with their kids and their, their family and friends and, and not be bothered. Right. Essentially that's what all humans want. We, we want our basic needs met food, shelter, and, and love, you know, safety. And so, you know, I think more and more people are waking up to the ills of, of you know, whether it's politicians or the, the media or, you know, Hollywood or athletes and, and not just here, but around the world. And, and, you know, right now we have some, you know, obviously weak leadership here in the country, but also overseas. And, and I think for the longest time, uh, and we can certainly get into a discussion another time, but I, I think if you look at the way that some of the political parties operate, it's not to bring us together, it's, it's to keep us fighting, right? You think about the, you know, you hear about the old science experiment of, uh, you know, scientists putting a glass jar with all different colored ants and he sits it on the the, the desk there and watches and the, the ants happily march and crawl around each other and no one's, you know, going at it. But if the researcher shakes the jar, it's mayhem and, and everyone starts, mm. or all the ants just literally start attacking anything that they can get their pincers on. So we got to ask ourselves, like we're in the jar right now, who is shaking it and why, and just be wise and, and able to look at what is truly happening right now. Even if it goes against what you believe, even if your side 
may be potentially responsible for what's happening because the future of this country and the world um, is at stake. I, I don't think people truly understand how much the world needs a strong America. Um, and we here in this country, like you said, people take it so for granted. I know how amazing this place is compared to the rest of the world. And dude, if I was uh, you know, in Australia, I would hope that the guy sitting in Australia or France or Germany or wherever feels the same way about their country as I do about mine, because that's how we save this thing. Ultimately, humans, the reason why we've come so far is because we cooperate. We need to get back to cooperation. We need to get back to a place where we can talk with each other. We need to get back to a place where we can question things without being deplatformed and silenced and have your jobs and your lives ruined, you know? So I think aside from some of the, the, the political clown show that we've seen over the, the last couple of years, I think people are waking up to, hey man, some things need to change, whether it's with you know the government or big pharma or how beholden we are to any one party. I, I would almost urge people like, don't assign yourself a label. Labels are nothing. They are not who you are. And, and today, most people, that's what they wanted. They want to hang some label on themselves. I'm, I'm black, I'm white, I'm gay, I'm trans, I'm straight, I'm whatever. No, we're all human beings. We are all connected. We are all in this together. And right now, you know, it's almost like we're all on a plane. And, and you know, unfortunately for us, Biden's our pilot. I don't want that guy to crash. Like, get it together and start making some things happen that's actually good for us. Like, I don't, I'm not a fan, but I'm rooting for the guy because my, my family depends on it. All of us depend on it. The world depends on us coming together. So I would just say to people, man, like open your eyes and ears, listen, listen to other people before you speak, try to hear and understand what they're saying. Try to maybe understand why people think differently than you. Uh, and maybe you'll learn some things or potentially maybe you'll share some things that they'll learn from that then we can go together know, into the future. So I'm hopeful, man. I, I think, you know, most people want the same thing I do. I want to be able to do whatever the hell I want to do <laughs> whenever I want to do it with my kid. Like I want to go out to the mountains with my kids and go here and go there. And, you know, I don't want anyone telling me what I can and can't do. I don't think anybody does. Right. So I would uh, just urge people, like, instead of hanging a label on yourself, like I, I don't want to be labeled as a, a Republican or a Democrat, like let the politicians hang labels on their heads. We should all be voting for what's best for our children and what's best for our country. Love it, brother. Love it, man. Thank you so much for spending so much time. I sincerely appreciate it. I hope I get to see you in person soon. Uh, maybe get you out, get you out here, or maybe I'll pass through old Va Beach one of these days. But uh, man, thank you so much for everything. Uh, please give my best to the family. And uh, man, best wishes going forward. I'm always here for you, brother. Same to you, man. Thank you so, so much for, for having me on. It's, it's always fun to catch up with you. I will definitely be out there. I'm actually working on uh, finishing up my private pilot so I can get into flying some bush planes. This so is what I was talking about. Live. There's always something going on that I don't know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> Hey, man, I, I got to touch the dragon, bro. I got to touch the fantastic. dragon. Fantastic. Something's got to get my blood awesome. pumping. But uh, I appreciate it, brother. And I look forward to Sounds seeing you Sounds great. Soon. Take care. 10,000. My workout gear and apparel of choice. Why? Because they are the best. And I've used a lot of workout gear over the years, a lot of shorts, a lot of shirts, and 10,000 sure stands out. This Father's Day, if you're looking for that gift to give dad, well, if you want him to get back in shape, a little inspiration perhaps, well, 
10,000 is the gear of choice. I've been using their seven inch interval short and their versatile short. Uh, those are some of the most popular styles. Perfect for the gym, even spinning, if that's your thing. Uh, runs, high intensity workouts, backyard workouts, doesn't matter. It is super comfortable. Absolutely love it. And uh, lightweight, breathable, durable. And they sure tested this stuff out. So no matter what you're doing, running to Olympic lifting to boxing, you can find gear, shorts, apparel, whatever you're looking for that is top of the line. And I love that they have this motto of being better than yesterday because it harkens back to earning your trident every day to being the best operator and leader you can possibly be, always being better than yesterday. So I love that that is in their mission statement. Continuous improvement not overnight success, continuous improvement. They have a team of over 200 athletes who have tested their gear to ensure these designs, fabrics, trims, and fit are just top of the line and awesome. They have free shipping and free returns and a lifetime guarantee. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash danger close to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc slash danger close. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they're always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Now, what do I have here? Just got back from a trip to Argentina in the Patagonia region. And of course, I brought down my binos. These are the Swarovski EL range 10 by 42s that my wife got me for my retirement ceremony. Love these Binos right here with range finders. Awesome. And this is my Sitka bino harness that I have been using for quite some time. And Josh Smith at Montana Knife Company sent me out this new blade. Uh, and it, it is awesome. And I was trying to figure out where to carry it. And I put it right here and it stayed right there on my bino harness the entire time. And man, I love this blade. This is awesome. So Josh, thank you so much for sending it. 
love what you're doing out there at Montana Knife Company. And uh, man, I love this orange. This is a great blade. And uh, if you want one, be sure to follow Montana Knife Company on Instagram. Check out their website. Sign up for their newsletter because that's when you find out when these blades are dropping. And when they drop, they sell out immediately. So get on that website, sign up for their newsletter. And Josh, thank you so much for this blade. I love it. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To connect with Eli, you can follow him on Instagram at Deep Sea Surf, or you can email him directly at Eli, that's E L I, at Seven Sages Health.com. S E V E N S A G E S H E A L T H dot com. If you enjoyed that conversation, be sure and leave a five star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate the support. Take care out there. Be safe, stay strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.